It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. The short of it is, he said, uh, if you show the geometry of this here, nobody will probably be talking to you. But if you start showing the mathematics here, don't be surprised if someone would like to talk with you. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grimerica Show. We're going to be chatting with a friend of the show, Edward Nightingale, a little bit later. We met him at Paradigm, had a, had a good old time with Ed. Um, but first... As always, Greedy Graham. How's it going, buddy? See what happens when you make me do it on the fly? Greedy? <laughs> greedy. Oh, really? That's like greedy. the farthest away from me, <laughs> I would hope. <laughs> I think you've said that one before, too. Probably. Yeah. I was thinking like gallivanting Gre- would have been a good one. Maybe. Greasely Graham. Glamorous. No. Glamorous. Your, your co-host, Glamorous, glamorous yeah. Glam. Yeah. Graham. Glamorous Graham Dunlop. And I'd like to introduce uh, also Red Pill Junkie, the infamous 14 blogger and soon to be podcast uh, specialist. Aficionado. <laughs> How are you, Red? Hey, man. How's it going? You know, how's the weather up, up there? Beauty today, plus 11 or something. Yeah, it was nice and warm. Yeah, well, I, I just want to know, you know, what the hell happened with winter? Because right now it's you you wouldn't believe how fucking warm is here down here in Mexico. I mean it it feels like we are already in April or May. Yeah, say here it seems like it could be spring. This close to the mountains, you never get too excited because that can change in a fucking instant. We could be buried under two feet of snow again, but it seems like <laughs> spring. But I was actually talking yeah, to an older fellow about about it and. Uh, an older fellow? Yeah, from work. Oh, yeah? And uh, I was like, fucking weird, eh? And he was like, no. He's like, when I moved here in 77 or 78 or whatever, he's like, I didn't even have to buy a shovel for three years. I just had a broom. So, yeah. Just, so what are, you, what are you saying? That it's getting it's not colder? It's global that's warming. Not, oh, that it's not global warming. Yeah, plus Austin. We're, we were just talking to our our guest tonight, and, and Austin was uh, yeah, hit the freezing cold. Hard, right? And back east, it's there's a big deep freeze going on back east. Well, so. even in RPJ's post, he says it was below freezing or he was cold. I still picture that as it's yeah. like it's like ten degrees, and I'd yeah. be down there in a t shirt and yeah. fucking yeah, board yeah, shorts. Yeah, yeah. But like Bill Nye, the science yeah. guy, says, or Bill Nye, the climate guy, can't you just mention that it's climate change? <laughs> Well, there there is this um, uh, post at the NASA.gov, you know, webpage, you know, NASA satellite sees a warm winter U.S. West, you know, 
mentioning how, you know, even despite the fact that in places like Boston and up north, you know, uh, New York, there's still, you know, under uh, tons of snow, uh, uh, on the west side of the United States, you know, even New Mexico and also in my country, Mexico, you know, they are experiencing the opposite, you know. In L.A., you know, they are really, you know, having one of the warmest winters ever. Yeah. Mm. I welcome it. <laughs> well, you don't, you wouldn't welcome it, you know, if you were, you know, in L.A., in the middle, stuck in traffic, you know, scorching to death, you know, on the highway in your car, and maybe without, without uh, air conditioning. No, but I welcome the new weather in Calgary, because I don't have to worry about that for, fuck, it would take 150 years at least, more than that. To get to that Before it's hot enough that Calgary's scorching. Yeah, well, less people die during warming periods and cooling periods. We know that. Uh, we do we? <laughs> That's what they say. Well, who <laughs> knows? Who knows? You know, I, I was reading that uh, in places like Sao Paulo, for example. You know, it's the it's the biggest city in the Americas. You know, twenty million inhabitants. I actually don't know if it's bigger than Mexico City. But anyway, they are suffering from a terrible drought. You know, I mean, uh, uh, that it's reaching, you know, alarming levels. You know, people are actually starting to die <laughs> out of a lack of water. And it's kind of, you know, uh, amazing if you think that next, I, I, is it next year that Brazil is going to uh, host the Olympic Games? Uh, I think so. I don't know. No, I don't. I think it's, it's so Summer in, Olympics. So yeah, it's that. That'd be the year. Twenty sixteen yeah, summer and twenty eighteen's winter. Yeah. So imagine if they they still are suffering from a lack of water in Brazil. You know, just in the middle of the Olympic Games. You know. I don't know. They'll they'll find a solution. Well, hopefully. For the Olympians and the attendees, anyway. Yeah, yeah, sure. I don't know sure. about the yeah, Brazilians. For the <laughs> yeah, for the Olympians and all the tourists who can afford, you know, a $20 uh, bottle of water, you know. But what about the people living in the favelas? Four, four hours ago, Brazilian president pledges total commitment to Olympic Games in 2016. Wow. I heard that we've got... Uh, I seen a special on Brazil the other day. They had to have those fucking trolley cars. Or like fucking, you know, like the, the like the ski list that you ride in gondolas, gondolas coming down from the slums into the city, just fucking nonstop because mm. there's no room for roads. Fuck, hey, that's a good idea. Yeah, pretty sweet. Why don't we put those up in Calgary so we can get people to the city? Apparently, it's just a nightmare. The traffic. That's been pretty bad. Yeah, I think there were there were plans to build one of those here in Mexico too, you know, but, but it looked like, no pun intended, you know, a, a pie in the sky kind of <laughs> scheme. <laughs> do, 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 <laughs> so, <laughs> so much fun with my soundboard. Darren surprising me with a jingle for the UFO quote of the week. So I guess we'll cut past some of the other crap and get into this crap crap 
So, oh, and look at this. Cut through is the start of the quote. Cut through the ridicule and search for factual information in most of the skeptical commentary, and one is usually left with nothing. This is not surprising. After all, how can one rationally object to a call for scientific examination of evidence? Be skeptical of the skeptics. That's from Bernard Heisch, astrophysicist. Now the, the name does ring a bell. Yeah, me too. And there's, if you want a synchronicity for that, it's a zero. So be skeptic, skeptical of the skeptics. Yeah, for sure. So I felt bad. Remain in the radical center. That's right. That's what we're trying to do here in Grand America. I I felt like we skipped past Ed Nightingale, Darren. We should mention a little bit of him. His uh, interviews coming up, talking about the uh, the Giza Plateau, right, and all the uh, geometrical and mathematical precision that that whole plateau was uh, was designed to. Right. It was a. It was a. It was a. It was. He's got a lot of good content, but it's real challenging get it, getting it across on a radio show. Mm, I bet. Might be a good idea to it go w- to the website while, while you well, listen. Yeah, that's it, a good idea. If you're not driving. Yeah. It was difficult to follow it, you know, back in the Paradigm Symposium. And while, while he was, you know, using uh, his PowerPoint presentation, which was, by the way, you know, one of the most sleekest more professional looking slideshow you know presentation i've i've ever seen what kind of presentation did you say uh powerpoint no what did you say it was you know what did you say it was it was very what very professional looking, you know. Right, very, yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. As a designer, I, I really appreciated, you know, the detail, you know, and and, and you know how you know beautiful and gorgeous his graphics were rendered on the screen. But even with that, it was difficult to 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 for me, you know, to follow his, his mathematical arguments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. That's the point. Sometimes there's so much detail, uh, it's hard to know what the profound elements are. Mm-hmm. It's over your head. Yeah, yeah. So maybe you guys... he should use. Sorry, maybe he should use like music, something like that, you know, in order to present the mathematical points in a more. Um, how you say instinctual, you know, more uh, easy, easy to grasp approach. What do you, do you mean by that? Playing music or using the, the musical tones as a metaphor for the, the math? Maybe, you know, somehow translating, you know, the, the mathematics into, into, to tones, you know, musical tones. You know, There's a musical <laughs> overtone to this research, right? He talks about how the yeah, scales sure. and everything are all inter- yeah, exactly. in- interrelated. Yeah, harmonics and all that, you know, it's, it's, it's all interrelated. It's all, it's all interconnected, you know, geometry, mathematics, music. Speaking of that, Darren, aren't you starting your uh, sacred geometry classes with Randall Carlson? Yep. Me and my wife. Really? Yeah, we did. We did class one. Class one. How was it? It was good. Was it review for you? Was it what review for you? Like you're pretty good at math, so was it like pretty 
basic or well no there wasn't really oh, right. we, we haven't got into the math yet we uh just kind of got a rundown we had to go out and buy some geometry kits oh yeah some paper protractors and yeah. some some uh, no compass compass and square compass and a is ruler the, so you're, you're using masonic tools now? no all we're using is a compass and a ruler and you can make all the other shapes oh cool just by using you use the circles and then you make the other circles off the fucking outer edges of the circles. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Then from that, you can get the triangle first. It really shows you how much you could do with a piece of string if you knew how long it was. And, like, yeah, I know that's all you needed. Annoying. Maybe a fucking stake to punch in the ground to do a circle, and that's all you need, man. And, and you, a plank. I can make all sorts of shit. <laughs> yeah, and a plank. And a wood plank and, and three hours of darkness. In the dead of night, you know. <laughs> My newfound knowledge will come in quite handy. I'm sure it will. Yeah, that's good. So yeah, that's I'll keep uh, keep focused, and we'll link in the show notes to where uh, where you can grab the the classes yourself over at uh, Sacred Geometry International. Right? Yeah, dot yeah, com. Yeah. Of course, Randall Carlson is a friend of the show and an all time favorite. So, uh, and the, me and the wife, we, we watched a couple documentaries and we're like, oh, let's try and figure it out. So we're going to go through the lessons. Square that circle, buddy. You get a couple phone calls with Randall too. <laughs> oh yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So, so quick question. Can you, can, is there enough content in that to do a normal segment for the next eight weeks or whatever on the show? I don't know about a full segment yet, but I'm really just scratching the surface. By the time I get to lesson four or five, then. Okay. Then for sure. All right. Well, I might ask you about I'll it. I'll know more. Can yeah, I'll keep you posted. Down. I think we're going to do a, try and do it in the format, like a lesson or two a week. So it's not just, you know, I think you learn more like that instead of hammering everything out. You know, they're only, so I think they're about an hour, an hour and a half each. So if you, okay. you could do them all in a couple of days, really. So it's eight or nine sure. lessons. So there's probably 12 hours of content, which you could do on a weekend. But I don't <laughs> think it would sink in as much if I do, if we do an hour and a half every week or, Five days or something like that. Did oh. you did you watch his uh, his YouTube series too? I think I watched three of them so right. far. Right. I'm just gonna wait for the DVDs now. Right. Okay. Do I have anything that plays? That I know that's, that's what technology? I was too. I have to use my laptop to watch them now. Do you still have a DVD player, Red? Yeah, sure. I mean, well, the, my no, not really. You know, my my Blu-ray, which plays DVDs and the DVDs uh, uh, installed in my old four-year-old laptop. Yeah, my PlayStation will play it probably. Yeah, yeah. That's that's, good. that's the only thing I've got. Really? Play a DVD. What about your laptop? No. No? It's an error. And that doesn't think, that big fucking honking computer no, doesn't play in broken. a DVD? The DVD oh. thing's broken. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so I got some feedback here. You want to get into that or do you want to What talk sort of feedback? Um, Where are we starting? Well, I got I got some lucid dreams, some synchros, some some feedback, some yeah, some other stories. Bring it on. You don't say ham, you say spam. That's the spam gram jingle. That's G R A H A M at gramerica dot com. Graham. <laughs> so uh-huh. can I can I talk? Uh, can I do a lucid dreaming one? We need a we need a jingle for that. All right. This is from Aaron, Aaron P. 
There you I haven't, go. No I last haven't, names. I haven't read this whole thing. I just know I've read some of it, and I know it's going to... Hopefully it doesn't fucking good, so. get all fucking squirrely here. <laughs> <laughs> all right, lucid dreaming has been something that often... Because we all know Graham will read it verbatim, and he'll get about a paragraph into it before he even realizes it. Uh, lucid dreaming has been something that ha- often happens for me, albeit regular, irregularly. I suppose if I practiced at it, it would become easy. The lucid dreaming episode that, that we did there um, did help me identify my dream sign, and it was an aha moment when I realized my dream sign is the cave. It is a regular theme in my dreams. In my dreams, I find caves, or I'm in a cave always going in deeper for refuge or exploration. But that's not the dream I want to tell you about. Many years ago, when I was in a tough spot in my life, the point where I had rebounded from the bottom of the barrel, I had a slab of malachite. That was three inches square by quarter inches thick. Now he sent me a, a picture of this malachite, and it's kind of like a malachite. Uh, malachite, yeah, right. Sure, sure enough. <laughs> Thanks, sure. Red. And it's like when they cut when they cut the slab, it's almost like tree rings. It's kind of green and it's kind of like tree rings and cloudy kind of thing. Kind of trippy looking, almost like an ink blot. You have the picture right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, I thought that was a brain. Yeah, there you go, my buddy. That's your brain on lucid dreaming <laughs> or <Nice>. magic mushrooms. <laughs> so, so, uh, cause this is interesting. I didn't know about this malachite. So we had a slab of about three or inches. Even how to pronounce it. Square by a quarter inches thick. <laughs> I don't know what had possessed me to put it under my pillow. I suppose I had wanted it to influence my dream state. And so it did malachite for those of you. For those who don't know, is a semi-precious stone that has different hues of green and sometimes a whitish swirl and rings. In my dream state, I was in the malachite. It was living, moving, and breathing with swirls and eddies. It should have been a peaceful thing, a peaceful feeling. There was, however, no peace. It felt wrong and totally uncomfortable. I was not accustomed to lucid dreaming, so it wasn't a fear of the dream state. There was something terrifying and wrong. I had to get out, frantic had to get out, had to get out. I awoke to find the malachite still under my pillow. I was holding the malachite slab in my hand and still overcome with the terror of the dream. I threw it against the wall opposite. I threw it against the wall opposite the wall of the bed where it hit and fell behind the bookcase. I couldn't shake the feeling of wrongness. So I got up and went into the hallway that led to the other bedrooms and living room. I turned to the living room and found a creature standing in front of me about four feet tall covered in hair. I guess it looked like a demonic chotka from the old school land of the lost. I probably pronounced that wrong too. Mm-hmm. I read. Yeah, Chaka. I've never, Chaka. I don't know if I've seen the original Chaka's uh, Will Ferrell's little buddy. And the new one, Chaka. <laughs> oh, oh, really? Chaka. It had claws on its hands and claws on its feet. I, I looked at it in its eyes and it turned and ran. I could hear the claws tearing at the carpet. And it, as it ran, and turned into the kitchen, claws clicking on the tile. As it ran away from me, I could also hear it breathing and heavy wheezing rasps. I need help, I remember thinking. (laughs) I walked into the bedroom where my grandparents were sleeping. They can't help me, they're sleeping. Realizing there was no help, I saw the crucifix on the wall that looked like it was back illuminated against the wall. I said aloud, help, 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 and then I woke up cold and sweaty. That was fucked up. It had been 20-something odd years, and I still remember that dream like it happened last night. Now, here's a weird twist. I've never been a big fan of Conan O'Brien, 
never really watched a show. I was flipping through the channels some nights later, and there was a midget in a monkey suit in the audience or something, and Conan walks up to it and starts talking to it. It looked into the camera, and it felt like I was looking at me. I'm pretty sure I was awake and not actually dreaming this. So somewhere out there, in some archived Conan O'Brien footage, is my personal demon caught on camera. <laughs> Thanks for reading. I'm totally into your show and I feel guilty about not kicking down to your show for as much as I enjoy listening to you guys. I do give you, I did give you a, a review on iTunes today. So thumbs up. Thank you very oh, much, sir. That's mm-hmm. much so appreciated. What's, what's Graham going to do with that information? What information? This what I just read. What are you going to do with it? Why is it Malachite? Not Malachite. Malachite. <laughs> Maybe you should get both, just in case. (laughs) (laughs) And put it under your pillow? Uh, Yeah, exactly. Let me know how that goes for you. I will. I still haven't put that tea that that other listener suggested, too. I I keep meaning to look that up. I remember uh, when we were house-sitting, when when we went uh, back home for the social before we got married, uh, someone was out of town, so we stayed at their house. She let us stay at, stay at her house, and she had lucid dreaming tea in the cupboard. Yeah, I know. We talked about that, and and, and you guys took it, didn't you? Or you drank it? Yeah, I think you so. Took yeah. it. But I think I was drinking, too. Or I was... Yeah, passed out. Yeah, I don't... Fucking nothing happened, anyway. Recently, I had... Or I don't remember. I had blue lights in my room, and that actually stopped from stopped me from dreaming a little bit, so I changed them to red, and that actually helps. My dreams are more intense uh, with red lights in the room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you should see the look on Darren's face right now, Red. Uh, I'm just experimenting with different things, right? I got the old Christmas light thing, right? So I left it in there like while I was sleeping, and so I got it. Let's stick with that topic for a sec, because I got another one from Matt here. Is that okay, Darren? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Want to play the lucid dream? Oh, we don't have a lucid dreaming jingle. So this is from Matt. Uh, <laughs> very funny. <laughs> I'm in the uh, midst of this. I'm in the midst of this episode so far right now. Um, so far, my favorite one. He says, "I've had many lucid dreams. Unfortunately, I fucking hate typing stories on a phone. However, I did want to mention that I've done drugs several times in my dreams throughout the years and have experienced the effects." Although not upon waking, I've taken mushrooms, LSD, and weed, and very similar to the states of consciousness those things induce, they tend to have a strange dream quality in their effect. Sometimes in the dream, I've taken them deliberately, and other times I've had the experience of ingesting them by accident, such as I'm talking to someone and automatically reach into a bag and munch a handful of caps, then think awkwardly afterwards, holy fuck, what did I just do? Sometimes, I've been there. Yeah. What, like in real life? Yeah. You should talk about that that, ex, that ex trip report you have. The crazy one? Yeah. Like the one that... The three like the in the mother, morning. Yeah, the mother of all. The one that quit the ah, trips. For, three for in the morning at the witching hour. Yeah, right around then. One day, not today. Yeah, <laughs> okay. one day. One day, Darren will do his own personal trip report. Sometimes I would freak out about the upcoming trip and somehow manifest an antidote as felt myself starting to peak. Anyways, yeah, cool shit. If I didn't hate, if I didn't hate taping so much, you'd have a shitload of synchronicity stories, trip reports, and lucid dreams for us. So 
Yes, you'll have to use our imagination. Or you could use uh, speak to dictate. I, t- I talked to him about that. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. You should check the voicemail, too. I mean, he, might, uh, he might leave us a voicemail. I think there's a 30-second time of- limit. <laughs> so speaking about this topic of um, uh, dreaming and also you know, the use of... Uh, psychedelics and other substances. I wanted to ask you a question, Darren. Fire away. Okay, this is something that was brought up in one of the uh, Joe Rogan's podcasts, the idea that uh, the regular regular use of cannabis, you know, somehow um, ameliorates or diminishes uh, the, the regularity of dreaming. Not that I implying that you know anything about that, but you know, you, you can you cor- corroborate this? Yes. Okay. I I usually don't remember my dreams if I dream at all. Are you saying there's a correlation between chronic use and? But no, remember Dennis McKenna said that he thought it was that too, and then he. He did yeah, something, yeah. and all of a sudden, he was able to start remembering his dreams. So he said he didn't equate it to that. Well, I don't know. In one of the uh, psychedelic salons, you know, recordings, you know, he said that if he went uh, cold turkey for a week or two, you know, then he's he will have you know the kind of dreams that will make you you know call your mom <laughs> at three in the morning. I should try that. Call your mom? <laughs> Cold turkey. Yeah, well. Yeah, oh, just okay. for a week and see how it goes. Yeah, yeah. well, it, that would be an interesting experiment, you know? And you should, you could report it back to us and the, listen, and the listeners. Or not me, but a, a guy know a guy who smokes weed. Yeah. Exactly, you know? So, well, speaking of psychedelics then, Red, are you, are you planning on... Uh, Partaking again, and I'm talking about your. Well, you, you just, know. you just. Well, I wanted to ask you about your your blog. Uh, you, you wrote a small mm-hmm. book. Yeah. You wrote a small book on your first experience. <laughs> you could ebook he, that shit. Yeah, well, since I already knew <laughs> that the alleged psychedelic experience, you know, the, didn't have what. Some people call them the quote-unquote money shot, <laughs> you know, at the end. What I intended to do instead was trying to do, in part, some kind of uh, anthropological study, you know, trying to uh, explain the particulars of uh, the use of these substances among the, the Wichol people and how they go about their uh, religious rituals. And on the second part, you know, uh, 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 narrated from a point of view that uh, like some kind of a journey piece, you know, trying to, to, to make the reader, you know, go along for the ride with me, you know, experience the things that I experienced. You know, and that's why, you know, soon I, I soon realized I was the thing was going to be way too long. So that's why 
I tried to do it, did it, to do it as uh, entertaining, you know, uh, as I possibly could, you know. And when from the response I have received so far, you know, uh, it's it's been, you know. Uh, mostly, you know, positive. And I think people did uh, get a kick out of, you know, did, did, did appreciate what I intended to do. So getting back to your original question, whether I will uh, do it or not, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm still, I'm still considering, you know, considering it, yeah, trying to, to have it a, a second time and, uh, Maybe, you know, uh, this one will do the trick. Although, you know, as I stated on that piece, you know, the alleged uh, lack of results, I, I don't equate it as a, as a failure in itself, you know, um, uh, for the reasons that I explained on that lengthy essay. <laughs> That, what you did know, you say? Uh, that took you a couple months to put together. Two months, two whole months, you know, in, from getting in and out, you know, getting in the zone, uh, as it were, you know, writers will know what I'm talking about. And then, you know, leaving it aside because you have other things to do. And then, you know, you revisit it, you see what you wrote, and then <laughs> you start rewriting it and rewriting it over and over again, you know, I mean, at least 10 rewrites I did with that thing. That's why I, I stopped writing a long time ago. Once I figured out mm -hmm. I could just yap and there's no turning back. <laughs> yeah, there's I know. No I mean, uh, yeah, uh, I totally understand it. You know, for me, it's the writing is still a grueling, you know, uh, laborious process, process in which, you know, every single sentence is being brought out with the, the sweat and tears, you know, and, you know, it's, it is no, by no means a fun undertaking, you know, I think some famous writers said, you know, that I don't enjoy writing, I enjoy having written, you know, and I totally understand that. Is it getting easier now that your English is getting better? Because I noticed your 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 writing is uh, yeah, and your and your reading is very very good. Like your knowledge of the English language is yeah, almost like it's, a, I, I almost like it's a first language for you when you're writing. Yeah, I, I, you know, it wasn't it wasn't that way at the beginning. Of, of course, you know, you know, people even criticized me on the Daily Grail, you know, something that I, you know, I actually appreciate, appreciate it, you know, because it managed me to, to, to keep improving on it, you know, and, you know, by now, some people are even amazed to find that, that actually I'm not a native, you know, English uh, speaker, you know, that uh, I, I was born in Mexico, uh, from Mex of Mexican family, and I've lived live here in Mexico all my life. I never had the chance to, to, to study abroad, something I would have probably enjoyed, but alas, I didn't have the chance, you know? And you now know, we you make you talk that. English every couple of weeks. Well, you know what? You, you want to know the real secret? You know, you want to know how I really started to get the hang of English? When? Movies. You want to know? 
No, no. I have three words for you, man. I think I've already, uh, I've already mentioned this. Yeah, I've, I've already mentioned this. But for the new listeners of the Gramerica show, I, show, I have three words for you. The iTunes Mr. store? No. Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. With Didn't Mr. Rogers. No, man, oh, the man Mr. was a saint. Up. Maybe that's I don't Mr. know what you're talking up. about. Don't you go about, you know, uh, uh, defaming Mr. <laughs> defacing Rogers Mr. Rogers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How dare you, sir? No, Is that man, the guy that would Mr. take Rogers? off his sweater and his shoes when he got home every time and all yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Won't it's you be my neighbor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Won't you be my neighbor? Well, the guy used to talk in such a smooth, in such a pause, a slow and easy to pick up uh, tone of English, you know. Easy to pick up for a known English native. That uh, slowly I started to train my ear, my ears, as it were, you know. And sooner, uh, by listening to him, I started to really get the hang of understanding English, you know, because, because before that, you know, it, it, it was really difficult, you know, it, it, it all sounds like gibberish, you know, you don't really, your brain is not able to, to, to parse the words among all that noise coming out of <laughs> the pe people's mouths, you know what I mean? You know, I'm sure that the same thing has happened to you when you visit a foreign country, you know, like you, Darren, when you visited Mexico uh, on your honeymoon, you know. I always and maybe think I you know. know. Once I get a couple of drinks, I think I know Spanish. They usually get pretty pissed off. I remember one well, time, the first time I was in Mexico, I was down on the beach trying to talk to some locals. And buddy's like, yeah, you better just get out of here. <laughs> So I was like, I think I was trying to say like my Spanish is poor, but it was coming out as like Spanish people are poor. And... <laughs> it was a trade. Uh, yeah, and the worst is, yeah, and the worst is that I'm sure that a lot of people actually thought that you were, you know, last playing games, you know, that we're a Mexican playing as if I was a gringo. Yeah, well, plus, I mean, yeah, I'm, I, could pass for a Mexican. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You know, and, and we are all being a bit racist here, but well, whatever. I can I could almost blend in anywhere in a pinch if I ever need to. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. I can. I'm a chameleon. Didn't Mister Rogers have that have that little puppet thing with Henrietta or something like that? And do you remember that, Rat? Okay. That was creepy. There was some creepy kid shows when I was I was a kid. just a little, little, little kid when Mr. No, Rogers he had a, a trolley, you know. Oh, the trolley. He coming in and out of his house. Yeah, that was And the mailman. Okay, that's enough, no, Mr. Right, Rogers. Okay. I didn't mean to cut you off there, Red. <laughs> okay, hey, I got a, I got a synchronicity from Alan N. Okay, I didn't even know. I just kind of hoped. And I you want you guys to, Mr. Rogers. I want you guys <laughs> to take a, 
take pay special attention to the very end of this because he's got a question and and I want to know your take on it. So he's like, "Hello, Graham. While putting down pavers for a sidewalk, I had to cut a two inch thick root from a nice tree in the front yard. Why didn't you just cut the paver? What? Because he can't do that. Then the root just keeps growing through the pavers, right? Well, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Before I cut it, I called my brother <laughs> to tap his extensive knowledge on these kinds of things, and he said the tree will lose a limb on the opposite side. Tick for tack. After I made the cut, mm-hmm. I walked around the trunk, and as I got to the opposite side, a two-inch thick old limb fell off and missed my head by an inch. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Is that a his brother's? His brother's up there, so I get down. <laughs> <laughs> is that the joke is that yeah that's it that's the end fuck man yeah he's, his brother told him a piece was gonna fall off the other side of the tree and, and he did. walked under and it did almost hit him in the head mm. right after he cut the root yeah he says after I made the cut I walked around the trunk and as I got to the opposite side a two inch thick old limb fell and missed my head by an inch I've never heard of that actually before like if you cut one side of a tree and another side like we the yin, try yin that. yang. Kinda. Let's go try it right now. Yeah. Well, your wife almost had a branch fall off her, and and that was yeah. Did was, you oof. were you cutting something on the other side of that? No, there was a fucking tire swing hooked up to it. I kind of surprised that you guys don't know, don't have any lumberjack friends, you know? Lumberjack <laughs> friends? Yeah. I, I well, used to yeah. know uh, a lumberjack. Okay. <laughs> He's a tough my my grandfather was a lumberjack in the United States, actually. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it was pretty strong guy. Uh, my father used to tell me how once, you know, was back in the job, and I think there was some kind of uh, the logs, you know, like cut loose, you know, and there was some kind of like avalanche, you know, and somehow, you know, he he was. He managed to run and and and, and jump uh, enough so, so that he could you know avoid being crushed like, by a bunch of logs. Crushed exactly, yeah. So that that speaks about you know his physical prowess back in the day. Hmm. Alan's also got another one here. In his so wait, email. that one kind of goes against itself because the higher the synchro the less that that's a real thing that happens. Because if that's a real thing that happens, then it's not really a synchro. It's just well, it's not supposed thing to happen right away, is it? I don't, I don't know. I'm not an authority on this. Yeah. I'm authority on the synchro. Well, we can leave and that it's one. it's a six again. and a half. Oh, okay, all right. And he's got another one. Or, he says, or in my 50s. I'm in my 50s and I've never been stranded on the toilet. Stranded? <laughs> he <never>. says... <laughs> He says, great show. Have you ever sat there and wondered, why is Joe talking? Joe Mama? I don't know. What is that? What is that? What does that make you think of? What comes to mind? Joe Rogan? That's what I thought of. Why is Joe talking? No, I thought, I think he's talking about Joe Rogan. Why is he going on and on? Let the guests speak. Maybe. I don't know. Could be my own. Joe Biden. (laughs) So never being stranded on the toilet is not a synchronicity. It's a feat, but I've never been stranded on the toilet. I've had to walk out of a toilet, maybe not have proper fucking 
clean up. Uh, I don't want to know about it. You ever broken one? I was staying at a guy's place in Ireland and I shattered his toilet. No. Uh... (laughs) Very embarrassing. It's like, well, thanks for letting me stay at your place. By the way, I broke your toilet in half. Nice. What else you got, buddy? Well, I got I got more stories if you want, and uh, you know, lots of feedback too. Pick something. Let's get something. Feedback. Okay, let me pick a little feedback then. Just pick a random one. Brown's a dick. (laughs) So uh, yeah, we got a we got a message from. from Josh. He says, howdy, Graham. I tried to give you kids a donation through PayPal, but couldn't get it to work. The link provided. So Darren can talk about the fixing of this link. I fixed uh, it. Yeah. Sent me with uh, a link with no direction to send you some cash. So I want to thank him for donating. He did finally uh, make it work after Darren fixed it. And pointing out the fix button. I wonder how many people just give up. When they click yeah. It I wonder how many or... donations we missed. <laughs> I wonder how long it was. Probably not many. Probably not many. (laughs) So a donation from my Meezy account will not allow you to retire, but I appreciate your podcast and would like to give some value back. I found you through no agenda and have been listening. He's been trying to pat people on the back. That's the Canadian equivalent of punching someone in the mouth. I like it. All the no agenda, all the no agenda listeners will, will uh, get that. Like Darren, I'm still skeptical of several topics that you cover, but it's nice to have something to contemplate that I otherwise wouldn't consider. Plus, it pisses people off when you bring some of these things up, so that's another bonus. Keep up the good work, and I will continue to intake your content through my ear holes. Thank you very much, and thank you for the support. Of course, uh, that's how we keep the show, 100% ad and sponsor-free. No ads on the website, uh, because we are listener-supported. Uh, you can find out how to do that at grimerica.ca support. Yeah, help cover the expenses. Yeah, and get an email. Any subscription over $5 a month gets you a Grimerica email address while supplies last. I think at like 50 subscribers, we're doing Psilocybus 2. Psilocybus 2, enter the mushroom, the sequel. Again. How many subscribers on Tordurius and Ayahuasca Grimerica show? A thousand. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get to Brazil. <laughs> You're going or through Peru, sorry. that. Do you want me to? Uh, the... Do you want me to get? You want me to do another couple of stories here? Or what? We got time. Uh the interview's long. Sure. Okay. Okay. So this, these are some good stories here, and this is from uh, Todd. Todd R. <clears throat> he says three stories, all very different. We were staying at a hotel in Montreal. I had sleep terrors as a kid and had always had pretty intense dreams. But I was dreaming about driving my car on a snowy highway and losing control and spinning out. I've had that dream multiple times. Mm. You probably haven't even had a dream of snow red, but it's this white stuff that falls in Canada. It was fuck if it snowed in Mexico. Let me Google it. (laughs) Let me Google it. It was very vivid, and I woke up to the feeling of spinning out of control, very sweaty and shaken up. It took a while to fall back asleep. That day, we were driving home to Connecticut. Conditions are fine. We part, we're part way into Vermont, and it starts to get really snowy. <laughs> Did they spin out? 
Soon there's a few inches of snow on the highway and it's getting messy. I asked my wife if she had any weird dreams last night. She says no. And I don't mention anything. It would freak her out. I tell myself I'm not going to let it happen and I'm going to get off the highway, get some gas so my Volvo has more weight. So we get off the highway and come we get off the highway and come to an icy hill and sure enough I lose control and spin a few times into a snowbank. No damage. We get some help and continue on our way, but it felt exactly like the dream I had had. I told her about it later that day and she obviously said to let her know next time. I like those ripple stick dreams. Those precognitive dreams. Precog? Well, I haven't had I haven't had a dream of you know being in a car spinning out of a, on a snowbank, but I have had dreams of being in a car spinning out of control. You know, and I I know there are people who say that you can't dream, uh, have a dream of you uh, in which you experience your death, but with me that's not the case. You know, I I have had dreams in which you know I I reached the state in which I go in the in the part of the dream where I die, and that's when I wake up. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes I dream that I'm falling, and I wake up and I'm like, "Whoa, I'm not falling." Yeah, but could that be any more? Could that be any more cliche, Darren? Really? <laughs> Sometimes I dream I'm falling. <laughs> I get that whole vertigo but, sensation, though. Yeah. Did you go to to the point where you, you know, reach the bottom? No. Most of the time, I don't even know because I'm falling. I, I just wake up because and I, I feel like I'm falling. I've got that vertigo feeling, and I'm like in a panic. But then I'm in my bed. Yeah. And I just go you back know, to sleep. That's when I, I once, fly. When I start I falling, once I just dreamed. Fly. I once dreamed that I was uh, that I was somehow being killed uh, by a firing squad. Like it, I was life. in some kind of jungle, and maybe I was some kind of uh, guerrilla fighter or something, you know. And my squadron or something was captured, and we were going to be executed, you know. And I remember. Waking up from that dream, you know, sobbing like a baby, you know, sad over the, my uh, untimely death, you know. And, you know, maybe some people will say, you know, obviously this kind of dream was a reminiscence of a past life. Well, maybe, you know, or maybe it was just something my fucking subconscious concocted, but it really had a powerful impact on me. Hmm. It's that feeling afterwards that sticks with you for like half the day. No, for me, it's half my life. <laughs> <laughs> so I got a little trip report here, Darren, if you want to hear that. This is a good one. Okay. The same guy. That should be the last Same thing, guy. Though. There's three stories on this. I want to read them all. Same guy. This is the trip report part. Is this the third story? Second story. Okay. One time my buddies and I did paper acid when we were about 20. We really started getting into it, and we were booted from the small party we were at. They weren't cool with us dropping acid. So the three of us were driving carefully, trying to get to another safe place a few miles from where we are. Extremely rural, unlikely to see another car, but we see an individual, no, we see an identical sob approaching us. We slow down, as do they. 
and we all look at ourselves as we pass. I'm thinking, what the fuck? But I'm afraid to say anything. Then my buddy says, what the fuck? That was us. We all saw it. Ah. <laughs> I've, I've been there. Really? Yeah, on TV. That's, really? Yeah, well, not in the same situation, but shared hallucination for sure. Big time. On oh, on TV. Yeah. yeah they were all just tripping out. It wasn't themselves. That's a good one, though. That's that's fascinating. You think they all just? You think it was just a, a just a oh, shared? Yeah. It was a shared hallucination. Yeah, I think yeah. It, there's like some sort of merger there. When you're tripping with a good wow. group of guys and you all like you're all in the zone, there's like something. There's a connectedness. I remember yeah, being, and, uh, like and I, I remember watching be, stuff and everyone at the same time is like, "Whoa, did you see that? Yeah, Chitin did that." And I was like, "Yeah." And it totally wasn't happening. It just, no, you not all saw at all. The same yeah. thing. Yeah, definitely wow. wasn't happening. Yeah, I had. But I think I had some of those, but they, they were pretty minor. And some of them were people I didn't even really know very well. Yeah. What was that, Red? Oh, really? No, I, I was just uh, wondering about that, you know, and, and Darren just answered it, you know, oh, whether okay. I was wondering whether you can only have shared hallucinations with people you are very close to, but, uh, you know, Darren says it's not necessary. No, I knew half of them really well and the other half not so well. I just oh. met him like a few days ago before. Me, me and my buddy, okay. we used to, we used to... Like, obviously trip out a little bit and, like, you know, yell and scream over things and stuff like that and have these sort of, like, mini trip synchronicity kind of things. So we're baked driving driving up this road in, in like, the back roads of where we lived, right? Like, similar to this, actually. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we're driving, we're baked, we're driving up the road and we see this guy pass by us. We go, that looked like Jim Day. We both said it, right? Hey, that looked like Jim Day. The next car driving by, Jim Day was in it. And we both just lost it. Who's Jim Day? Just some guy. Some yeah. older guy. <laughs> I don't get it. You don't get it? I get oh. it. Okay, last story. I have a twin sister, and we've always had a strong psychic connection to, to her and others. My wife, deemed a genius as a young child, also has a strong psychic connection, and we often read each other's minds. Basic stuff like, you know, her calling me as I pick up the phone to dial her or starting conversations about what she's thinking about or vice versa. It happened many times throughout our relationship. It's just accepted at this point. We are maybe 22 years old and very early into our relationship. Had just boned and we were laying there chilling. I feel an amazing sensation. I start seeing stars everywhere in the dark room, reminding me of doing acid another time and being in my bedroom. Just shit floating everywhere, bright lights everywhere, but a very strong feeling and sensation to go with it. I'm debating about saying anything. I'm just enjoying it, but also feeling like she saw it too, but wasn't sure. Then said, do you feel that? It was such an unusual feeling and unlike anything we'd experienced. Both of them? Yeah. It's so, not just a flashback. So peaceful. We just laid there for a while. It was the only time it ever happened, but we've mentioned it a few times to each other saying, what the fuck was that? So they're both feeling the same sensation, similar to the like shared hallucination. I think that we just talked about. Yeah. So, uh, with a kind of tantric sex kind of vibe. Jesus. <laughs> so thought it was worth sharing. We should do I, a show about tantric sex. I should, <laughs> fuck. Yeah. We got, I, got, I bought a book. At, I bought a book at Paradigm. I bought it. The, the tantric one. Yeah, sure, you did. I, okay, it was free. You stole a book. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was worth sharing. I'm new to the podcast, but loving the info. 
finally, others to share my beliefs. That's kind of a theme, too. I was drawn there because of Randall Carlson's podcast. Uh, after hearing him on Joe Rogan, I wanted more. He shared a ton on your show. David Matheson also blew my mind. I have a, such a strong urge to continue learning and expanding my mind. Keep it going. A lot of new listeners. I like it. Yeah, thanks, Todd. That was awesome. Love the stories. I like to see yep. Graham juggling feedback over there. Yeah. Darren's, Darren's liking my scrambling. Scrambling, yeah. Graham. Yeah. Well, you got anything else before we wrap it up, Red? We're probably going to be close to three hours on this sucker. And it's getting late. Yeah, well, maybe we should just wrap it up. All righty. Well, that was a good conversation. Thanks. Yeah, pick it up again next week. All righty, then. All right. So well, Two uh, weeks you... till my birthday. Oh, yeah? 34? So no interview mm. that week. 34. 34? Yeah. You're such a baby. Are we taking the week off then? Totally? Or going to schedule something else? Well, we could do the day after or something. We'll figure it out. So we got a lot of potential people booked for the show, but it's kind of all juggling in the air right now. It's kind of been a challenge, actually. Uh, March. So so there's lots of stuff happening. We just haven't solidified a lot of dates yet. So uh, we do have the mindfulness guy from Montreal or from Quebec. He's, uh, he's like a, a mindfulness expert, a Buddhism guy. So that's going to be fun. That'll be next week. Same time as tonight. Mm. So Tuesday... Is that the right time this time? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, there's a few other ones coming after that. We might have David uh, Estelin back. Daniel. Daniel. (laughs) And, and, uh, yeah, a bunch of other other guests coming up. So So keep in tune to the the backstage page on grimerica.ca, and you can find out uh, how to get in the live chat room and and, uh, to listen live and to go to the chat room if you want. And then we'll be uh, releasing those episodes uh, shortly after. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for joining us, Red. And uh, enjoy the chat with Ed Nightingale. I just felt like dancing. felt like dancing. We can sing together. I just felt like dancing. I was Okay, guys, uh, we're going to be talking with a friend of the show, Ed Nightingale. We met him at, uh, met even, him at the Paradigm Symposium, had a blast. And uh, we had a bit of a chat with him then, so most of you probably heard him. But we'll get into that a bit more. But uh, how's it going, buddy? You excited for this one? Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah really excited. Yeah. Yeah, we've got, uh, yeah, you guys, uh, well, we chatted with Edward quite a bit at Paradigm Symposium. It was great mixing with some of the lecturers and Ed's also presented at uh, CPAC, the conference on procession and ancient knowledge. And he's been, uh, he's been studying this stuff for like almost 20 years now. 
And he's got a background in master woodworking, musician, and he's an author and researcher. Uh, lives in Pennsylvania, and he's uh, starting to do some radio shows now because after he's presented his uh, you know, presentations visually in front of some people, he's gaining some interest here. And he's got this new book out called The Giza Template. It's Temple Graal, and I guess probably pronounced Grail, I'm not sure, and Earth Measure. We'll talk to Ed about that. And uh, basically it reveals that Giza was designed as a repository encoding high scientific knowledge while tracking the solar system as well. And he basically takes us through a step-by-step uh, recreating of this complex in its entirety. And it's, uh, it's pretty mind-blowing. Darren and I have, have got the book here, and we've dipped into it, and we've seen some of this uh, him present before. It's pretty, it's pretty mind-blowing. He presents a... Uh, mind-blowing? A mind-blowing. And blowing. <laughs> I never, it's funny because you never call me, and I will never let you get away with it. I know. Yeah, that's true. Anyways, he presents a geometric mathematical model of Giza that changes the game. In the words of John Anthony West, the architectural Rosetta Stone. So we're happy to finally have you on, Edward. Thanks for staying up late for us, and welcome to Grimerica. Great. Thanks for having me on, guys. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, good Good to talk to you. Of course, we've seen uh, your presentation at uh, the Paradigm Symposium, and it was great there because we had the uh, the visual aids um, and that's one thing your book is full of is there's a lot of visual aids. So, I mean, if, if people are intrigued by this, I'd definitely pick up the book and it really kind of, it kind of walks you through it. But I guess we'll do the best to do it with our best to get through it without the visuals. Um, so when did you first get into this, Ed? Like you, you kind of, you kind of stumbled into this? Well, I, I was always interested in, in, uh, Giza and, you know, uh, the mysteries like that, For probably back when Eric Van Donneken wrote Chariots of the Gods, you know, I first started getting interested in the <laughs> in the subject matter. And then being, you know, a, a woodworker, or a, a builder and a craftsman, the, you know, the, the architectural structures at Giza just, you know, really intrigued me as to why, you know, they went to such lengths to uh and measures to build such structures and why there were no hieroglyphs on them and of course at the time we were hearing they were you know egotistical pharaohs uh trying to outdo each other except mm-hmm. each each pyramid got smaller as they went so that was kind of a uh didn't really work as an explanation for me kind of insulted my intelligence so <laughs> uh i had the opportunity in 1997 to go on a trip with John Anthony West. And I was already, uh, had been working on uh, my my theory, or it's not my theory, of course, but the, the theory that this was an architectural repository. And I kind of had an idea where the center of this uh, complex might be. <laughs> and went over there with John, and that, that really just changed uh my interest because <laughs> uh, I did find what I thought I was looking for the center and uh, I've been working on it ever since and that was like 97 1997 wow. yeah yeah that's a that's a long stretch so yeah. can you can you just give just to sort of get people intrigued here give us a quick summary of like what your what your book is about and what you're finding like basically you're you're finding a bunch of uh mathematical patterns would you call it in the in the whole giza template which is the the plateau of the pyramids basically right the plateau the the giza plateau that consists of there's actually 11 pyramids uh and the, the sphinx and there's several causeways that connect to each pyramid 
different structures on there. And what what they did, uh, these architects or architect who designed this, was to uh, create a repository. And this repository would encode high science, uh, measure the whole measuring system, um, the the uh, well that that being the the uh, Earth measure part of it in the, the title of the book. And and if we get back to the title of the book, there real quick, what this uh, you know the the Giza template they used a template to create this. So that's the template part. Now, okay. the, word, the word template, uh, the origins of that word is temple, actually. Uh, so the temple grail, what we're looking at is uh, the word grail actually can be uh, read as uh, a step or position or coordinate. So temple coordinates and earth measure is hmm. the subtitle to the book. Uh, so what they did, they encoded these numbers in these structures the, uh, that is really how all, all science is really based on these numbers. And, the, and nature uses these numbers. Um, that's you know, how we get the Fibonacci spirals that we see in nature and all that. All that comes from mathematics and, and geometry. Now, geometry... Uh, is of course the beginning of it and you can use geometry and then encode number in geometry using proportions of you know a, a, a circle or uh, divided in half and divided you know divided up so then you would be turning it into mathematics hmm. so, so what they did there was encoded this knowledge and um, I get a little bit Toward the end of the book, I get into this with the Sphinx. Now, the Sphinx is actually uh, really the calendar part, which the, the, the follow-up book to the Giza template that I'm working on now um, will will show this whole connection to the uh, the stars and the movement of or trajectory of the solar system and the Earth um, in relationship to the celestial bodies. Hmm. Okay. So, so, um, this isn't just, uh, like, I guess the, the, I don't know. I don't want to, to play it like it's, uh, like it's been dumbed down over the years, but do people just originally think they just sort of threw up these pyramids and there wasn't all this, uh, <coughs> design incorporated in the plateau? Like obviously you you found it, uh, all the way through the plateau, right? So somebody actually sat there and put uh, a hell of a lot of science and, and math into the whole design, right? Oh, absolutely. Th th this is, uh, there's more to it probably, I'm sure, than I even uh, have found so far. But uh, it's really irrefutable evidence that, uh, you know, this was designed as a complete, uh, it's a repository. That's the, that's exactly what it is. And, and you know, uh, they use these, structures, the distances between them, the sizes of them, the angles of them, they all encode different parts of this knowledge. Okay. So then we're not talking about Egyptians. Like if we're going to this level, we're talking something pre pre 
catastrophe, I guess. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we got to look well, at this. Pre something. Am I jumping yeah, something? The... Some, some, am I jumping some guns? <laughs> well, we probably just jumped in the deep end there. Yeah. But let's go for it. You know, we got to learn how to swim. Let's do it. So, you know, the if if we look at what's been written about it or what we see written about the the pyramids, there's not a whole lot. But what I have seen is uh, there is a, a text or a hieroglyphs uh, written in Edfu in Egypt, I believe, on one of the temples there. Mm-hmm. And it roughly translates to, to say something like the plans for the temples came down from the heavens at Saqqara in the days of Imhotep. Mm. Something like that. And uh, that's really about all that's really been found regarding, you know, where these pyramids, the plans, where it came from, where the idea came from. But 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 the god Thoth, uh, and if we look at uh, the Enoch, the, the biblical uh, character of Enoch, uh, I think those are, uh, I think they're two in the same characters uh, hmm. probably, but uh, I think yeah, that's, that's where a- we need to look. Yeah, that's a whole other other topic. So, what are the Egyptologists? I, I just started reading the book Enoch. Yeah, we we bought it, we bought it for the <laughs> studio finally. Yeah. So, so um, what do the Egyptologists think about this? Like, do they do they even hmm, do they even pay attention to this, or what? How has this been received? Well, from the Egyptologists, I I, I you know I don't know how they're going to accept this too well or not, but. You know, if you hand them uh, an equation of 2 plus 2 equals 4 and they frown at it, I mean, I guess that just tells a story. But what I've got here is it's not theoretical. This is a blueprint. I drew this from scratch based on understanding what they were doing there. Right. So I don't know uh, what the Egyptologists will will say. I haven't haven't got that... uh, exposure to them yet i don't think but well uh, but but i mean what this shows is that they were more sophisticated and intelligent in, in some ways than we give them credit for right so what do they think of what do you think that they were gonna think or about the difference in the culture of you know compared to what we what we think it was well you know i think i think i'll probably get ignored a little bit to be honest with you by academia but because they can't really refute it um, this is something anyone can do. I, I, I've got it in the book. It's step by step, and it's really not that hard. And we're talking about uh, the most difficult uh, mathematics that's going on in there is, is really just basic arithmetic. Um, you know, there is really not a lot of super high uh, mathematics or I mean, there is in deeper layers of it, but but the basics is is there, and uh, I could you could really teach this to middle school children just to start out off with. Hmm. But it, it's still a surprise. Like it's di- it's different than anything that we've uh, thought of as far as like how this was designed, right? So I guess what I'm getting at is is I. Like how, it's hard to explain how the culture back then had well. all this, well, how they set, spent all this time and 
and energy into designing it in this way. Like it's pretty. Yeah, well, yeah. Let's get into that stuff later. Let's have that because that's the fun. So let's let's. Okay, what do you want to do? Get into the actual. Well, yeah. Let's get into the yeah. Let, okay. Let's uh, like let's get into. So what what did you find? What did we what did you find? And and how did it originally jump out at you? All right. Well, to begin with, uh, just from an uh, an artist's point of view, when I looked at Giza, I could see like a a center, and the center of it to me, the way it looked was uh, at the at the uh, the causeway that runs from the center pyramid pyramid of Khafra uh-huh. down down to the Sphinx. To me, that looked like the hand of a clock. And, um, you know, of course, there were other causeways that went off the Great Pyramid and another one off the Pyramid of Benkara. But that one in the center, just the way it was angled, it's about 13 and a half degrees off of due east. And, you know, again, to me, it looked like the center of a balanced um, complex, you know. It was about equidistant to the to the third pyramid, to the corner of the Great Pyramid. So that's where it started for me. And that's when I went over there with John, I was actually looking at that point and was kind of stunned to find uh, about a three-inch hole uh, cut right in the bedrock, right in approximately the point that I was looking for a hole. (laughs) (laughs) And... And, I, you know, I'd like to go back there again and actually check because it was a little, you know, it was uh, we were on a tour and I, I had my video camera and I was trying to videotape everything and and look and see. And, of course, I wasn't measuring or anything at the time. But so I found this point And from then I knew that, uh, you know, any kind of design, any architectural design, you would have to start with one point. And it hadn't been too far uh, before that that I was actually working on a house that was built on a radius. So this whole house, all the measurements were taken off one point. And this point was out in the middle of this circular driveway that, that was the center of the circle that this house was built on. So to me, like it, it just uh, that's how you would lay out a complex. You would pick one point to start your measure. So I got my compass out, and at the time then, I was using the survey maps. And um, I was trying to understand it using the survey data. And after a little playing around with with some uh, circles there, I, I came to realize that the correct circle that seemed to work and, and capture each one of these uh, structures kind of was if I had drawn a circle with a diameter that had nine units in a diameter and that that one unit was equal to this, the base length of the center pyramid of Khafra. And once I did that, a few things started clicking together. Um, so I worked on that for quite a while. But, and I had an idea, well, geez, if, if they're doing it like this, you know, there should be, I should see this and I should see that, but I was not quite seeing it. It was close, but not quite. And it was really kind of frustrating for a few years. And then in 2006, I uh, came across uh, 
a satellite image from uh, the QuickBird satellite, and it was really a nicely centered image right over, uh, directly over Giza. So I contacted Satellite Imaging and, and purchased the image and uh, actually got some the, uh, the data on the image on the accuracy and, and all that. And once I got that image, then things really started to click because when I worked with the Satellite Image, everything was logical and was falling right into place. But when I compared it to the satellite data, or the, uh, I'm sorry, the survey data that I had, the public data that was available, uh, basically from William Flinders Petrie, there was discrepancies. And I, I just couldn't really, you know, uh, justify that. Like, why are these discrepancies there? And uh, at the time, I was uh, uh, talking with John West and, and even Robert Schock about this, um, and Robert had actually had made a comment to me about the, uh, you know, the survey data, and I guess just in the conversation it came up that really no one else has been allowed to go in there and measure. So we were basically uh, had information from Petrie that really wasn't uh, scientifically verifiable. I mean, in any kind of scientific proof, you need to have someone be able to verify your data. Um, and no one really has been able to go in there and survey and get precise measurements. We're all relying on either Petrie or, or coal or, or uh, uh, the most recent, I guess, survey was from the Giza Mapping Project. But that's, it's not even available to the public. So I got to asking myself, you know, wait a minute now, you know, why would they want to, uh, you know, not be honest and open about these measurements? And then, of course, it really occurred to me, it was like, well, they're trying to hide something, you know, because if when these uh, using the satellite image, when all the pyramids were in their order, according to a mathematical model, it agreed perfectly with the satellite data, but not with the survey data. And then I realized what was going on. They changed a, a couple of the numbers in the survey data to, uh, you know, not allow someone to figure this puzzle out. Huh. So it, we're talking it, numbers like the, the circumference of the pyramids and that type of thing, or like the some of the may, basic measurements? Yes, and, and really the basic measurements that were confused in it were the distances um, away from that center pyramid of the the pyramid of Menkara, the third smallest pyramid that there was a 27 foot dimension difference in the survey data and the satellite data and 27 feet the number 27 happens to be a key number in all this um so that, that right there kind of tipped me off and we're talking about accuracy that that they state the experts quotes are in my book that state that the survey uh image is accurate to within 10 inches so you know we're talking 27 feet and then there's also another discrepancy of, I think, around nine feet between the, the, dis, the distance 
um, away from the center pyramid of the Great Pyramid. I think there's there's actually might be two uh, discrepancies there, but I haven't even bothered going back and look looking too much further at the at the survey data because I know what I have here. Yeah, well, I can just picture it. A couple guys out there probably don't want to be there. Don't really care about the pyramids, you know. Out there with measuring tapes, trying to pull it, you know, like who who yeah. actually did well, the survey? Well, was it? Well, William Flinders Petrie. Uh, was a very accomplished uh, surveyor, and there's no doubt that he could measure that to, uh, you know, pr- with precision. It didn't have anything to do with the the ability or the lack of ability to measure. Um, I, I looked into Petrie and his family uh, a little bit, and I think his father and his grandfather were both. Uh, very uh, high-ranking um, officers in, I think, the, the Scottish uh, military and basically set him up to be able to go do this. And they were interested in um, occult occult uh, subjects, matters as well. So I think Petrie knew exactly what he was doing there. And now whether it was Petrie who actually... Uh, Gave the 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 numbers um, incorrectly, or whether you know the the government uh, said no, these are the numbers you're given. Someone that understood exactly what I have here, uh, you know, told them uh, or made the decision not to let these numbers out to the public. This is just like a big Rubik's cube of numbers instead of colors. When everything is in its proper place, all of a sudden there's a just magical numbers that relate to one another incredibly beautifully um, are revealed. But if you change one number in there, if we change the distance between one pyramid to the other, all of a sudden everything falls apart and nothing really works out. These numbers don't have these relationships. So how did you reconcile all the differences in, in surveys and, and the satellite? Could you could you get an accurate number just from the satellite pictures? Like, can you yes. focus in enough to measure some of that yourself? Yes. And that, uh, we were able to zoom in to get into, you know, pixels. And it was a very high-def image to begin with. And, again, we were able to measure to within uh, – 10 inches. Now, what I did at, with, that, with, with that satellite images, I used AutoCAD, uh, a computer-aided drafting uh, tool, and actually physically drew a full-scale model of, uh, you know, the Giza Plateau based on a mathematical model. I don't know, you know, how much you, time you had to spend with the book, but the distances between these pyramids are key, are key numbers in, um, that were obtained from um, a mathematical um, coordinate system. If you saw the 8x8 uh, eight eight square in the book, um, uh-huh, yeah. there, there's numbers generated from that coordinate system that give us the sizes of each one of these pyramids and also the distances between them. So I was able to really just, uh, within a short period of time, was able to f- figure out what they were doing. It's, it was made to be uh, decoded. 
this is a very it's beyond brilliant. I mean, I can't even, uh, sometimes I just get so overwhelmed when I look at this thing, it just really blows me away. But but it's made in such a way that a simple um, compass and a square and basic mathematics, you can recreate this thing from scratch and then, uh, and literally understand what it, what they're doing. So, you know, it was just, uh, it was beautifully laid out so that, so that one could easily decipher it with basic tools and basic arithmetic knowledge. So, uh, so okay, let's get to the meat here then. So what, uh, what, what were they up to? Well, again, they were encoding this uh, knowledge of mathematics, uh, high science, uh, the science, you know, vibration and frequency and the actual measure of the earth. And beyond that, uh, in this follow-up book, I'll show how that, uh, the Sphinx connects the earth to the sky. In, in the builder's uh, trade or, or whatever, we have what's called a witness mark. Now, you put a witness mark to align uh, two pieces that you put together when you put two pieces together up you, you like make a uh, a line across the two so when you put the two pieces together you can see that they align yeah um so what the sphinx is doing is the witness mark to the constellation of leo in the sky the lion in the sky and the lion on the ground that's that's the key to this whole thing right there and when you line those up then you can start measuring. Think of uh, if you had the, the, the job of an architect or, or an engineer, and they're, they're creating this repository, they, they say, okay, we got, we've got to uh, show and map the trajectory of our Earth's solar system and how it's moving through space, because this is all important in this great cycle of time where we have periodic uh, events, catastrophic or, or what, what have you. So think about that. The, the first thing that you would have to do, is, as, of course, is the architect designing it, you would have to have one point on Earth that which you just would sit and watch and measure the sky from. Okay, and once you made that alignment, you did that with Leo, you created now, you created a line on, on the ground. Now you're going to go and watch the stars. And these stars are going to be on the ecliptic. In other, in other words, on the, the plane of the, the solar system, um, that how the planets revolve around the sun. That's the, the ecliptic, that, that plane, if you will. They were the, the uh, star of Regulus that's in Leo is right on that ecliptic. So they picked that star to be on the, on the ecliptic to mark out that we're measuring the ecliptic uh, and from the ecliptic. And, uh, and that once, was, that was uh, aligned years ago, right? Like, uh, Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like before yeah. the pyramids or something, wasn't it? Or? Well, well, I've, uh, I've been working on that, and this the second book coming out. Hopefully soon, I'm going to uh, present this uh, whole uh, reconciliation of the calendars, the calendar system. It, it's all there, um, 
perfectly uh, encoded in the stars and on the ground, but I've I've confirmed for certain for certain absolute certainty that back to 3114 BC, you know, everything was stable. You know, there hadn't been any uh, pole shifts or anything like that. And the reason I say that is because the alignments uh, that happen at these different times, um, they wouldn't line up if things had changed between now and then. So we can trace back and look back using like Stellarium software or some kind of star uh, program. Uh, you can actually look from a certain point and watch the sky back through time or forward in time, whatever. And I'm certain at the 3114 BC date, I also have a really intriguing date that really um, works right in line with Robert Buvall's Orion Correlation Theory, a, a 10, 000, approximately 10,500 BC. Um, I, I'm kind of leaning toward uh, that quite heavily. I, I'm still working on uh, some other dates uh, in antiquity, but there there is another a date that I, I found a, a really intriguing alignment that that I don't know quite how to um, fit this in the puzzle, but the coincidence is uh, far beyond uh, being a coincidence. But I have a date of 25,920 years uh, B.C. Huh. That's, that seems to be a really good alignment um, for, the, for the constellation of Leo, huh. which is, you know, it's, it's hard to ignore that. Uh, That's the one you know, great year, right? Right. And, and coming off the year zero in the Gregorian calendar is quite interesting. Huh. Uh, but if, if we want to follow up on that a little bit, just uh, the, how this calendar is actually reconciled is from uh, the year uh, 2012, December 21st, 2012. Huh. That, was, that was the biggest alignment that would happen in a 25,920-year period, the alignment with the galactic center that the Mayans... You know the the big hubbub there in, in 2012 with the Mayan calendar. That was the uh, end of a 5,127 year cycle and the start of Gramerica, right, Darren? Yeah, right. Yeah, you guys, yeah. yeah you guys been <laughs> around a while. Day. I know. On that day, Darren. Uh, oh, the, really? The website started. Yeah. So. All right. Great. So oh, we started cool. the next great year, Darren. Yeah. All yeah. right. Cool. <laughs> See if we can last a full procession. Perfect, man. That's that's what these guys that's were a lot doing. Of just, what, just what you guys were doing there. You were you were lining up things, man. That's great. But uh, anyhow, that that was where these calendars all get reconciled from that date. From from there back, I can I can reconcile the Gregorian calendar, the Mayan calendar, and the Hebrew calendar, and they're all right there at Giza. And uh, matter of fact, in the, in the third pyramid, the uh, smallest one uh, or smallest of the three, the pyramid of Menkara, has it's a rectangular base to the pyramid, and it actually has two slope angles, one being fifty one point eight four degrees, and one being fifty one point two seven degrees. 
Now, I just mentioned that the uh, Mayan calendar was 5,127 years. Um, well, what they were doing is they were using degrees and years. Um, they kind of worked together. Hmm. So the 51.27 degrees is uh, you just take the decimal point out of that and you got the 5,127 years of the cycle beginning in 3114 B.C. And then the 3114 B.C. number is actually quite interesting because that also is an angle that's encoded too, uh, 31.14 degrees. Um, so it's it's all really fascinating. I, I hope to get this book out soon. And uh, but but the first book here is basically the the foundation to everything, um, the ground measure and the uh, temple coordinates, uh, if you want to call it that. And the next book will build on that. <laughs> so do they point to anything like? Uh... I guess I just wanted to to sort of walk through exactly um, what's in the numbers. I guess at the plateau, like in the in the complex, or okay. Well, we'll we'll take it from the Great Pyramid. The Great Pyramid encodes a lot of different things, um, and the there's a very simple e equation um, to to come to the base length of the Great Pyramid, and if you look in the graph. Um, in in the book, and you will see that the number four thirty two is a really uh, uh, well known number in uh, uh, sacred geometry and and uh, numerology. But but four thirty two is is like the the sound of the ohm, and uh, uh, also um, frequency. Right, that frequency, and it was also used as a tuning uh, frequency for an A432 note uh, that was really used by uh, Stradivarius, actually used that, uh, um, that frequency to tune and create his violins. And uh, Verdi composed in 432 tunings, and that was very popular uh, back um, in early days. But anyhow, this, this number uh, 432 is in there. If we take 432 and we uh, multiply it by 21, we get 9,072. 9,072 is how many inches the base length of the Great Pyramid is. And where does and the 21 come from? The 21 comes from, if you look on the... Uh, Eight by eight, uh, um, the eight by eight grid, the coordinate grid. Uh, it is the twenty-first interval up the up a scale that goes up diagonally um, up across this grid, and it actually creates a fifth interval scale, just like in music. Um, I don't know if your guys are musicians or the musicians out there will know that. A fifth interval is the fifth note of a major scale of seven notes, um, or the eighth being the octave. Uh, and this this number 432 is a 21st interval up. So t using those two numbers, we just created the, the base length for 
the Great Pyramid. So now the, we're going to do uh, the base length for the center pyramid is very simple, and we're going we're gonna to take 432, and we're going to subtract 21. That gives us 411. Now, the base length of the center pyramid is 411 royal cubits. Um, so right there is the, is the, we've got the base length to the second uh, pyramid. And the third pyramid is, it took me a little while to figure that one out. But uh, what they were doing there is they were using seven cubed. In other words, seven multiplied by uh, seven multiplied by seven equals 343. So the base length of the one side of that pyramid is 343 feet. Now, this scale in which we find all this in, if we look on our 8 by 8 uh, square, what we have is a, is a doubling uh, set of numbers going down the left side. Um, it starts at 1 at the corner, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128, and 256 down the side. Across the top, it's 1, 3, 9, 27, 81, 243, 729, 2187, and 65, 61. Now, that is going by three. So we're doubling down the side and tripling across the top. That gives us um, the numbers uh, within that coordinate. We can go anywhere down, you know, like nine times, uh, uh, nine times, uh, Let's see, 9 times, uh, let's pick another number here, 27 times 32 would be 864, or 16 times 27 is 432. So uh, 16 down and 27 across, we get, we're at 432. And um, so this scale that we're picking this out of is 7 down and 7 across. And, and that would give us seven intervals up the angle. So we got three sevens there, seven down, seven across, and seven diagonally. So there would be the, the three sevens that uh, we're using to get the base length for the third pyramid. So in a very short order, we can determine the base lengths of all three of these main pyramids um, using very simple uh, numbers and measure. Now, aren't those aren't those uh, base lengths also coordinated correlated with the circumference of the Earth too, or something like that? The Great or, Pyramid, yes, has has relationships to the to the uh, to the Earth measure, no doubt. And it, it even gets a lot more detailed than that. Um, what's interesting? Okay, we we determined that four hundred and thirty-two multiplied by twenty-one is nine thousand seventy-two. And if we assign that the inch, so it's 9,072 inches, that comes to 766 or 756 feet. It's also, um, if we take, um, uh, let's see, we're getting to the measuring system into the root cubits. I don't know uh, how much you went over that, but um, in, in our diagonal scale that goes up, um, the, let's see, get to the right page here. Okay, it is uh, the scale that goes up diagonally. 
starts at 128, goes to 192, to 288, to 432. Now, between the 288 and the 432, which is the 21st interval, um, there's 144 uh, intervals in between 288 and 432, right? If we subtract 430, or 288 from 432, we have 144. Well, we talked about the number 144. Um, if we divide 144 by 7, we get 20.571428. That number is the root cubit. And within our great pyramid, the base length is not only 9,072 inches, it is also 441 root cubits. And then it gets a little bit more involved where we take a root cubit and we, we make a royal cubit from the root cubit. And the base length of the Great Pyramid in royal cubits is 440 royal cubits, which is pretty well, uh, uh, that's what Petrie came to the conclusion that the base length of the Great Pyramid was 440 royal cubits. Mm. But they don't explain where these uh, uh, cubits come from. They, they only got them by measuring and finding, well, that, that must have been the unit of measure. And But um, here within this chart, I show you precisely where all the cubits come from, where the inches come from, the feet, the mile, the yard. It's all perfectly um, laid, out. laid out in this beautiful little template. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I want to make yeah. sure the listeners know, too, like this, it's really hard to to make this visual, but your book, almost every page is a diagram and it's got, you know, analysis of all the, the structures on the, on the template. And it's got, you know, when you look at the template itself, it's, you've got the center line there with all the, the circles and showing how everything's lined up and the Fibonacci sequences in there. And I mean, it's all, it's all very visual. So it's hard to describe the, you know, the relevance of it. Hey, eh, Darren. Yeah. And I was going to get into like, um, feet and inches and yard like who are we talking those Randall Carlson I think who kind of let, let us in on how you know there's a little more a little bit more to those measurement systems than just you know somebody's foot length yeah oh yeah. oh yes absolutely yeah Randall Carlson he's a great guy we had a great time out in uh, paradigm I met him out there and uh, we've been in touch a little bit since then and uh, yeah he's he that guy is uh, He's a rock star, that guy. He's got some serious <laughs> stuff going on. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no kidding. It's it's good, cool watching you guys collaborate there at the uh, at the symposium. So, so let's get into that sacred stuff a little bit. So, you mentioned four thirty two is in there, and it's from it's all over your your measurements here. Um, yeah. and that equals. I guess it's one of the reasons why it's sacred is it's that four three two equals nine, right? It seemed like everything yeah. that Randall was talking about was was somehow equaling nine. Yeah, and I want I want to I want to just let you know too. If you look at that that uh, eight by eight uh, grid there, uh, the coordinate grid, and if you were to uh, write in each number at each one of those coordinate points on that grid, what you'll find, and and then you sum those numbers, just like you know you guys are doing there, summing the numbers. 
I think I think it goes the the first two columns down the the uh, two four eight sixteen etc and the next column down. I think those alternate of threes sixes, threes and sixes they alternate, and then every every number in the coordinate system after that beyond those first two columns all sum to nine every one of them yeah so yes that and that's why uh it's the combination of the doubling and the tripling together that create these beautiful numbers and that all sum to nine and are all sacred numbers i mean i think all the sacred numbers that you could probably name are in this uh, in this uh, coordinate uh, grid here. Hmm. And that's where they all came from, this science. And it's understanding how these two work together, the doubling and the tripling. It's kind of like the, you know, I don't want to get religious here or anything, but the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what they're talking about. It's a doubling, a tripling, all coming into the one. Huh. It's, it's, a, it's a really beautiful thing that... Uh, once it's understood, it's uh, Tesla knew all about this. Tesla said, if you want to understand the secrets of the universe, uh, you need to understand the three sixes and nines. Uh, that, that was a rough quote there, but uh, he was saying that. And, uh, you know, I think Einstein understood a little bit of this, too, and uh, Nikola Tesla surely did. And uh, another one who knew this was Ed, Edward Leedskalman of Coral Castle. Uh, he he knew exactly uh, this grid that we're looking at here. He understood that. That's how he said he understood how the, the Egyptians moved the stone and cut the stone, and he knew the secrets of the Egyptians, and this is what he knew. This is what he understood. Hmm. And I've actually been to Coral Castle, and um, I've measured Coral Castle, huh. and and I can show you that Ed Leed Scalman used all the numbers that we're, we've just been talking about, all these numbers. Uh, for instance, uh, on his front door, um, it says Earth 21. Okay, 21 is the number that is the key in all the division uh, that we do here, and it even gets into the... Um, the constellation, uh, 21 degrees above the horizon, etc. Um, and also, 21 is really the only hieroglyph ever discovered in the Great Pyramid, and that would have been in the southern shaft of uh, the, the, I think the Queen's Pyramid, I'm not, or the Queen's Chamber, that uh, they, they sent the uh, Yupawat, uh little uh, machine up there, uh, Gattenbrink first did it, he sent that uh, up, and they found a doorway. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I guess they sent another team in there to drill a hole through the door, found another uh, door beyond that. But within that little chamber there, they found some hieroglyphs in there. And the hieroglyphs in there, uh, there was, uh, I think it was, uh, well, it was quoted by Zahi Hawass that said that uh, the number uh, 21 was the main number. The, the other number was 121, which is 11 squared. Um, with, and 11 is a huge part of this whole puzzle as well. Yeah, we just did a couple episodes on Coral Castle if people want to go back. And uh, we had Scott, yeah. Scott Russell on who... Yeah, who I think listened he's, to that. Yeah, he thinks he's figured uh, how, how they were actually made. 
It's pretty pretty cool stuff actually. Yeah. And when we had uh, Joe Bullard on too, who talked about yeah. wrote that book about it, yeah. Ed Leeds Gallon. So, well, huh. one, one thing interesting that no one really has recognized uh, about Ed Leeds Scallon, and and, it, and this was one thing that went back early on when I was when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, um, okay, if I am correct in in this assumption that. Uh, Giza is this repository, and they were using these architectural structures to encode certain numbers. Who else would have would have known that? Well, right away, Coral Castle came to mind because he here was a man that claimed he knew how the Egyptians built and constructed the pyramids or whatever, and you know put his money where his mouth was. I mean, the dude built an amazing place there, and no one could really figure out how he did it but they were all you know big stone structures so my thought was well if ed lead scallon found the same thing i found at giza he would have encoded these numbers in his structure so i took a trip uh with my family actually went down to coral castle uh, for a few days and uh talk to the wonderful people there they were kind enough to let me do a little measuring and <laughs> immediately i mean i mean immediately i started measuring and was stunned i mean i didn't even have to really measure i could count blocks and actually see that he was using these same numbers so so just to keep uh I don't know how to describe this to people that are skeptical of like, cause you know how people, when they hear like yes, sacred geometry and they yep. hear numbers, you've yep. probably heard it a lot. Yep. It's like, Oh, well, we're just putting numbers together and making stuff up. But, but if I was to, to plan out a, um, uh, some architecture like that and make it aesthetically pleasing and functional and all that and plotted it out, I, the chances of it, you know, meeting all these, uh, principles are pretty slim to none. Right. Exactly. The, the, you know what? You you got to be, I, I wrote this kind of in the beginning of the book, you know, for all the people out there that say, oh, you're just playing with numbers. And right. Randall Carlson hit the nail on the head. He says, yeah, I'm playing with numbers. And so did God. And I'm having a good time doing it, <laughs> you know, and the chances of any of this being, uh, you know, a coincidence, you got to be a coincidence theorist. Okay. There's, it's beyond, you know, I've got hundreds and hundreds of measurements here that all work in a beautiful synchronistic uh, or, or uh, you know, simplicity and mathematical precision that, you know, I don't need to defend this book. This book I can put down on the table and I challenge, and I, I, I'm doing that right now, any academic uh, or uh, someone from academia or a skeptic or whatever, I challenge you, read the book and, and you, you know, you might have a different opinion of it. Uh, huh. You can't really refute this stuff. It's, it's a, you know, if I drew a blueprint of, uh, you know, a, a cathedral somewhere and I did it from scratch and, and all the measurements came out perfect, you know, with the, the built cathedral, you'd have a hard time uh, saying that, you know, it was a coincidence that I was able to draw this thing perfectly.
the real mystery here is is well, I, I mean, it's not really a mystery, I guess. But hey, Darren, you you measure shit like this. You're a bit of a builder too in your in your day job, and the mystery is is thousands of years ago. Is how whoever built this. It's got to be at least 5,000, maybe more. Um, it's pretty phenomenal that they had all this this science back then. Like, we have calculators and all this shit now. They must have been doing it with some pretty rudimentary tools, eh? You'd think, Darren? Or how, I don't how know. Like, I don't think it, so. I think it's just you, older than that. It's really? Like you think it's Atlantean older than that? Fucking yeah. Oh, like you think Atlantean it's going way remnants, back? yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Atlantis being a civilization, not a that place. That was more, like, more tech technologically advanced yeah, than the Egyptians, they, they, like? Yeah, like, maybe more than us. And they oh, seen yeah, this I, shit I th- coming, and there was not, there's nowhere to go. Like, what would we do if we seen a rock coming at us? There's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. We just got about, maybe, I don't think we're even advanced enough that we would think about the future. And they I were, they, we so they encoded panic. all this they, stuff. Yeah, they, the... they took the time and thought about the future generations. Yeah, well, if you read it. If you read it, you know, if you read the book of Enoch and, and see what Enoch was uh, was, you know, brought to heaven by God or whatever, and was shown, he you know he names these different architects and astronomers and mathematicians that taught him all the sciences, and he was he was told to go back and create a repository uh, so that these uh, uh, this knowledge would be saved in the event of a cataclysmic event. And that's uh, pretty much how I see it now. And get back, getting back to the date, dating on this things. I've got um, a thought on how all this kind of ties together. Okay, Robert Schock dated you know, with John West. They they dated the Sphinx to be you know very old. Uh, they're talking possibly ten thousand five hundred BC or so, which would uh, you know come into play with. Uh, Robert Bouval's Orion correlation theory. Yeah. Uh, but also, what's really interesting to me, and even from a builder or an engineer point, is very logical, and it, and it really um, kind of helps this along. There's a lot of argument, oh, when, when the Great Pyramid, when was it built, you know? Well, I suggest that the layout of this complex was the found the foundations of this complex the uh, were all done about the same period if you if you look at the uh, the, the center map? okay right well if you look at the center point of the, in the satellite map there where this causeway that runs down to the sphinx begins that that temple that's in they call it uh, coffers mortuary, mortuary temple but um, that temple actually is 360 feet long by 144 feet wide. <laughs> okay, those two numbers right there are uh, pretty amazing. But also, those blocks that uh, those that temple was built from are limestone blocks, huge limestone blocks, very similar to the ones that are set out in front of the Sphinx in a Sphinx and Valley Temple. They, and Robert Schock believes uh, that that temple probably uh, dates back from when the Sphinx was was built. Ah, uh, okay. So also, also the the base of the Great Pyramid, uh, the lower courses being uh, larger blocks and 
uh, as well, the Pyramid of Khafra, the center pyramid, and also the largest block, I think at Giza, limestone block, is in the, the temple that's up uh, by the Pyramid of Menkara, the third or smallest pyramid. Um, I think it's close to a, I think a 200-ton block up there, and that all shows the same type of erosion and antiquity associated with the Sphinx. Okay. So now, if we look at that from a builder's point of view, um, that's what you would do. And think about this. We're talking about uh, an architectural or a, a construction project that would take generations to do. So you would think, well, what happens if we run out of uh you know, funding or, or help or, or whatever to build this, what do we do? Well, the way this is designed, about 90%, maybe not 90, but a, a large percentage of this puzzle can be pieced together just with the the plan view or the, the footprint of each one of the pyramids and the lengths. So even if the pyramids didn't get completed, and you had enough, uh, uh, you know, enough of an open mind, you could probably figure out a good part of this, even if the pyramidal structures themselves weren't totally completed. So are you are you talking also about uh, when you look at the satellite map there, right, Darren, you see the satellite map up there. So the middle pyramid uh, has like two layers of this big uh, block around the base of it, right? And it's quite yeah, it's, it's quite wide, right? Yes. And yes. so and it's quite profound on that whole satellite image. You can see it and it steps down below the smaller pyramid. Um, mm -hmm. and uh, so is that taken into equation too, like the measurements of that actual base that it sits on? Yes. Yeah. Because yeah, I haven't really I haven't really noticed how big those bases are. Like they look like massive square Platforms that the footing. I think what you're seeing there, what you're looking at, is is you're looking at this this plateau was not completely level. It, it, up by the third uh, pyramid, the smallest one, which would be the western portion, it's actually higher uh, than, and it drops off uh, downwards toward the Sphinx. So what they were doing there, they were cutting in the bedrock and leveling out big areas for where these pyramids would be placed. So they cut into the, the bedrock on the plateau. So what you're seeing there is like walls that are, uh, you know, if you were leveling, leveling out a piece of ground that had a slope to it, it would be pretty much level with the ground on one end and cut down in, you know, several feet or whatever in the back. You understand what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So what you're seeing there is some walls and, and different levels where the, this plateau is leveled and prepared for these pyramids to be placed. Huh. Have you have you had a chance to look at Gobekli Tepe or anything like that? Because that's, oh. they're saying that that's, uh, you know, kind of old, old like yes. the Sphinx. Yeah, I, I've looked at it a, a little bit in... Uh, uh, Kind of working with it with Laird a little bit. Laird Scranton, uh, uh, he helped me write this book, and I got to really give him a big, big thanks. He he really helped me. I, I'm not a writer by any stretch of the means, and uh, he really helped me 
put this book together, and along with his uh, linguistics, it actually all tied in. And uh, I just, just want to note, too, that when I first met Laird, one of the first things that I, I saw him speaking, and he talked about in his linguistics, finding what they called a light cubit or light measure. Mm. And I was just blown away. I said, wow, he's looking at what I'm looking at here. You know, he's talking about what I'm looking at. So that's how Laird and I kind of uh, got together there. But uh, Yeah, Laird's anyhow. a great guy, too. We've had he him is. on. He's, he's, yeah. starting to get, he's starting to get into some real deep, deep research with uh, yeah. the, the U.K. And, yes. and his next book coming out. I don't know if it's out yet or not, but, yeah, looking forward to that. So basically, yeah, yeah I guess we're just it, – it turns out that it's – Basically, it's like a a place to hide the sake, same sort of sacred numbers that you're talking about in sacred geometry. Yes, and what it's I gotta like a say, lesson. yes, what I gotta say here too is that what's encoded at Giza really ties into most all other architectural structures that are there at one portion of it or another. It's basically the same information encoded, uh, you know, the, the information in, in the pyramids in, in Mexico and in a couple uh, different, uh, you know what? I almost look at it as each pyramids in a different form of measurement, just in case, you know, which only one of them fucking survived. Right. Right. And like Laird talks about, there's, there's, there were these teachers and, and I mean, that's literally what these ancient cultures talk about is there were great uh, teachers that came and uh, helped build civilization after a great catastrophe. And they taught people this knowledge. Now, just like, uh, you know, when you're going to school, you have different teachers. Well, each teacher might teach something slightly in a different way, but it's still all the same information. And that's what we're seeing at these different structures, uh, Stonehenge and all of them. Um, I'm really excited and, and I encourage other researchers especially to just Read my read this book, and it's not about me in a book. This is about sharing really important knowledge here. And with with this, uh, I think this was the grand, uh, you know, Giza template was, or the Giza plateau was the the main, uh, you know, lesson I guess in stone there, and it was that same information was put in different places. I think that's, uh, you know, what's going on in Gobekli Tepe too. Uh, just like Laird talks about, he, he's, he sees that in all these different cultures, there was, uh, you know, teachers that were teaching these basic uh, civilization plans and these, these ground plans. And what's really interesting um this template is based on a circle of, of nine and a square of eight. And most all um, uh, ancient cultures use that as, as their basic uh, land management um, uh, way to, that they were taught to lay out their civic centers and, and their, uh, their land was using this eight nine square, which which uh, we'll just get into the geometry of that a little bit. If you have a circle 
with a diameter of nine, and you want to estimate the approximate the area of that circle, a very simple way to do that is you take eight of those nine units of the diameter and you square them so you have an eight by eight square. And that eight by eight square would equal 64 uh, uh, square inches. And, and the actual, if you do the math on the circle, the circle would be 63.6428. So it's a very so close approximation. So then like, uh, say a 10 inch circle, you'd use a nine square? Well, a 10 inch, if you had a 10 inch circle, what you would want to do is just divide it into nine units. Just equally divide that, that circle. So then you'd get an 81. Well, well, it's not, it's not quite, uh, well, it would change. You'd have to do the math on it, but you would take that 10 inch circle and throw out the 10 inches. That doesn't matter, but just divide it up into nine. So you'd have, you know, like one, you'd have squares of one point, uh, you know, uh, one inches or something, but don't do that. Just whatever the size of the circle is, you just divide it by nine. And then you take eight of those units and you square it, and that approximates the area of that circle. Oh, so okay. then you then you okay. could measure the square once you're done and say, okay, my square is, uh, you know, nine inches or whatever. So um, nine times nine is eighty-one. Yeah. So you're 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 about right what you were saying there. Oh, yes. actually, okay. See, it's you know what's funny when you look at that picture. If you slide that up, it almost looks like that thing they say for the different, uh, you know, the second dimension or the third dimensions. Dimensions. Never mind. What? What are you going on? <laughs> no, but I think it's a way that you can measure the 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 area of that. Oh circle. yeah, I get it. Yeah, That's yeah. why I got it. Yeah. one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, yeah. You just, just multiplied nine by nine. Yeah, well, but I well, subtracted well, the we're, one. We were approximating there, so that yeah, was yeah. good enough. You, you you got the point definitely. So you were talking as as earlier. I don't have to show my work. <laughs> we'll check it here. We'll grade it. Yeah, you were talking a little conspiratorial earlier about how uh, the the old surveys of the pyramid plateau, the Giza plateau, were different than what you see on satellite now. But there was one in your book there on page sixty two. You talked about the Petri triangulation plan and how right. that agrees with quick birds. So is that right. is that because that's so deep into the uh, research that they didn't bother fucking around with those numbers. Well, well, that's interesting. Let me let me uh, touch on that a little bit. Yeah, you, you were talking about how um, we would compare the the, the template mathematical model uh, with the satellite, and it was matching precisely, but it didn't match with the Petrie survey numbers that he gave. Right, but Petrie also. Uh, drew literally drew a triangulation plan. Now, as far as I've been able to find, I can only find one copy of this actual drawing. Um, but what's very interesting about that, as you noted there, is that, gee, his drawing happens to match the satellite plans and the mathematical model. So, you know, when Petrie drew his drawings, he knew exactly what was there. Right. But but now, okay, in a drawing, we can see that they match, right? But when you give the numbers, when you look at his... Uh, the basic uh, numbers, kind of. Right, the numbers, the triangulation numbers that he gives, you really can't 
you know, you can't see that. You, you're just taking his word for it that that's the number, you know. So, yeah, you know, when you lay the triangulation plan that Petrie drew himself, it's a copy of it. So that's all I had to work with, and I'd really like to see the original. But, uh, yeah, they agree with uh, the, the quick bird and the mathematical model of the template, and they disagree with his own measurements. So explain that one to me, folks out there. That, you <laughs> Zahi, know, that, would, that would be a pretty, uh, crazy, yeah, Zahi. Coinc- pretty crazy coincidence, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to bring names into this. Oh, no, yeah, but, uh, yeah. That's okay. <laughs> he deserves He's it. probably been mentioned before on here. I think so, probably, yeah. <laughs> There's been a bit of a few shows on Egypt and all that. It's pretty mind blowing. <laughs> yeah, I wish that, you know, the listeners could see the visuals of this. I know, I know. It's, pretty, it's really it's pretty crazy. It's Maybe. a difficult thing to talk to, about on a radio, but, uh, you know, just really get the book. Uh, I encourage, I, I wrote this as. In, in as much of a layman's terms as I possibly could, and, and it's filled with, I think every page has at least almost half a page of graphics on it. Um, so I try to, you know, walk you through it and, uh, you know, uh, explain it step by step. And, and you can all see it. And, you know, the, the chances of, uh, you know, Petrie having his uh, measurements disagree with his drawings, I mean... I think that Petrie probably left that drawing out there to say, yeah, you, you know, for anybody who's really looking hard enough, you'll see that this is correct. Huh. And, and and you know what's really interesting, too? Well, at the is, time, there was no threat in it, right? There was nothing to compare it to. Who would foresee exactly. that there'd be a fucking satellite image exactly. in a hundred years that was going to call your bluff that you fudged a couple of numbers. Right. And, and that didn't happen really, you know, until, uh, you know, I found the, the, the satellite image here, but let me, let me just reassure you that there are people who know exactly what this is about. Uh, you know, I, I am certainly not the first guy to find this out, but I'm maybe the first guy that's bringing it to the public's attention. In that, level watch of detail. in that level of detail, yeah. Well, well, I guess uh, going public, I feel actually a lot better than I did while I was working on this. Oh, I'll good, have to yeah. tell you. Huh. Um, and actually, that that I'll uh, I'll I'll let you guys in on a little bit here too. That uh, my first, my very first uh, public presentation of this material was at CPAC in in two thousand. Oh, it was 2006 I went out there. Actually, it oh, was wow. just a, a poster presentation. I didn't really speak, but uh, Walter had me uh, in, uh, do a poster presentation. Um, so I got out there, and I had they had an, a, an article, a local newspaper here, Pocono Record, uh, did an article on my uh, discovery. Uh, and it, it actually got quite a bit of attention um, and I, I was there presenting the first morning at CPAC and I noticed this gentleman that was just standing there, pretty much stood there the whole time in the morning was just watching me. He didn't come up, talk to me. He just kind of stood there and, uh, uh, we broke for lunch and I was going to go have lunch with John West and, and some other guys. And, and, uh, this guy approached me and said, Oh, Mr. Nightingale, would you mind, uh, could I 
could I have lunch and talk, buy you lunch? And uh, I'd like to talk with you a little bit. And I, I said, well, you know, I appreciate the offer, but I, I kind of want to talk to these folks over here and that I came with. And uh, he goes, well, he says, uh, I, I came a long way to, to see you. He says, I just, uh, I took a red eye from Langley, Virginia. I'd like to, <laughs> I'd like to talk Langley? to you. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> And then the hair in the back of my neck stood up a little bit, and uh, he looked at me. He says, I, I'd really like to talk with you. He says, I came here to, to, to see you. And, and I said, well, how did you even know about me? He says, well, I, I, I read the newspapers. He says, and I read your article, and I figured I'd better come see you. <laughs> so, so I said, okay. So we sat down and talked, and uh, he was actually a really cool guy. And... Uh, he proceeded to uh, tell me some things, and uh, I guess I'll, I, without giving away a lot of the detail of the conversation, making this too long, uh, the short of it is, he said, uh, uh, if you show the geometry of this here, nobody will probably be talking to you, but if you start showing the mathematics here, don't be surprised if someone would like to talk with you and uh so well he, don't he, hold back here because we got uh, lots of time and i know and I know, you know but, we, we well, have all the time in the world for mib cia encounters with our guests so, <laughs> so well anyhow you know to to cut it to the short here he just basically told me he said that um there are people that would like to see this knowledge come out into the public but there are also others that don't want to see this out in the public he said he was he was there not to discourage me but to encourage me but to also uh in case i wasn't aware of the fact uh he wanted to make me aware that you know we're we're talking about some serious high science here that there that is known about um, in the tier one science, you know, we're, we're tier two, uh, tier three level out here in the university level and, and below, we don't have, uh, the science, the, the way it's being taught, it's just a lot of it's propaganda kinda, and, and, yeah, it's, uh... and I mean, and, and it's such, it's, I don't know, it's, some of it is just absolutely absurd. Some of the, uh, what they're teaching at the university level and, and not all of it. And I don't mean to offend good teachers out there and, and, and people in academia, but there's a, a level of science that's being suppressed and, you know, that's the bottom line. And it's at Giza. Do you think it's going to bust out anytime soon? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think it's on the verge right now. Uh, you got, you guys, Guys like Randall Carlson and and Graham Hancock and and a lot of other people, Laird Scranton. Everybody's kind of coming to the same conclusion, um, and rapidly. Um, and uh, you know, I think this piece of the puzzle I present here is going to be a big piece of the puzzle. And I again, I'd like to encourage uh, other researchers to get this and look at this. This again isn't theoretical. It's it's all uh, really basic arithmetic and basic geometry. Um, and look at it. It's it's uh, 
it, it's going to change a lot. Yeah, and I, I guess this really spurred you on too because that was quite a few years ago when that happened. And yeah, since, well, let me since tell then you. you've since then you've kind of <laughs> yeah up been, a little bit. Well, I've been kind of laying low for a while. I'll be honest, but well, actually, back then what was going on is I knew I had something. And, you know, I, I'd wondered what I should do with it. And, uh, uh, I was advised by some different people. They said, just put it out there. Even if you don't have the whole story, get it out there. And, um, and I did actually, actually, I think it was 2008. I was actually, uh, I had a book, uh, I, it was a precursor to this one that I was, I was working on, almost finished and, and was on Graham Hancock's site of, as author of the month. But what I was doing then was just showing how I back engineered it. But boy, I was getting chewed up like a, a I was jumped in a lake of piranhas because I didn't have all my I's dotted and my T's crossed. And I, there was a lot of unanswered questions. So it was actually a really good thing for me to have people, you know, really jump on it and tear it up. Because that forced my hand, and I said, "Okay, I just gotta wait till I figure it all out before I present it again." So I just went back to the drawing board, literally the drawing board, and uh, spent many hours trying to understand how this puzzle uh, goes together. And I've I've got it here, and uh, you know I, I challenge in a, in a most you know humble and kind manner anyone to look at it and, and and believe me too if somebody can point something out here that i have wrong or is is you know i don't claim to have all the answers here um and i'm sure there's more information encoded in here than i have come to you know i i certainly uh that's why i want other researchers to look at this but i've kind of uh feel like uh the boy who cried wolf, you know, there's been 10,000 theories on, uh, you know, the, the pyramids and, you know, it, it's hard to stand out when you've got, you know, so many other people claiming, oh, we figured this out, we figured that out. And I'm standing here telling you, I can actually recreate this from scratch. And everybody just kind of looks and says, oh, yeah, another pyramid guy, you know, it's... Yeah, so yeah. it's a little frustrating, but I think now it's starting to get a little bit of a leg. Uh, people are looking at it and actually saying, whoa, you know, hey, this isn't some kind of crackpot theory here. This is precise. How's the reception been so far? Uh, really uh, over the top. Excellent. I got to say uh, um, I, on Amazon, I got a five star review so far. And, and the, the reviews only uh, the few that are there. Or I couldn't have paid people to write anything uh, nicer and more. Uh, I really appreciate it uh, for those who have uh, reviewed it. And and anyone that does that's out there listening that's either read the book or is going to read the book, please do that. Please give an honest review on Amazon there and let people know what you think. And uh, I, th I think that'll uh, show. And I, and I am not afraid, you know, uh, of any uh, uh, negative, uh, whatever whatever you think of it when you read it, give give me a review. You know, yeah, yeah look, no, that's good. I, I'm looking for the truth here. I'm not looking to be, uh, you know, this, this is not about me. 
I, I can't emphasize that enough. This is about what these uh, ancestors left for us and the importance of what's going on here. Now, uh, while we're kind of on that note here a little bit, one of the one of the reasons I, I've been a little bit persistent uh, trying to um, especially talk to other researchers about this, and and maybe they they almost kind of wonder, you know, what's this guy? Leave me alone, you know, <laughs> he's bothering me. But I got to tell you the calendar part of this. Um, as I said before, the the date where the calendar reconciles was 2012, December 21st, 2012, at 12 hours, 21 minutes, and 21 seconds, to be precise. Um, that was when this calendar all points to. Huh. So what I'm telling everybody here is, hey, we don't have another three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten years to 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 kick this thing around, man. We need to look at it like now. And uh-huh. and I and I I mean that very sincerely. And I uh, you know I hope I can uh, get people's attention here because uh, this is it's really important. What about your own uh, personal experiences? Sometimes we talk to our guests about like synchronicities or it seems like there's a, a common thread or theme that that a lot of the researchers or authors we talk to have had profound synchronicities or experiences that have propelled them on their path. Um, it sounds like, you know, you, you're talking about some of that in a way, um, people interested in your in your subject for sure. But is there anything else that you have to share personally like that? Wow. Yeah. Um, hmm. it, it is pretty personal too, but, um, yeah, I, I guess I could, I, I'll share this with you and, uh, the rest of the folks, I guess I'll tell you what really happened was, um, you know, I was, I was woodworking and, and, uh, had a nice, uh, client list, had my own business and was, uh, doing okay. And, uh, playing music in my band on the weekends and running my business during the week and enjoying life. And, uh, uh, my daughter passed away at 16 years of age in 1996. Oh, sorry to hear that. And well, thank you. And that, uh, really just shocked me. And I, my parents were uh, retired and they were living on the, on the West coast. So I didn't really have them around and you know, I had my friends and stuff, but, um, so I was really kind of looking, uh, for some kind of, you know, support there. So, you know, I, I got to thinking about religion and, and, you know, I was brought up as a, as a Christian, but I, you know, I went to church when I was a young kid and that was about it. And then knew I never really went and paid too much attention to it as I got older. Um, but I started, you know, to really ask some deep questions, man, when that happened. And so I figured I needed this to look into religions. Cause I said, well, what makes me think that, 
I was taught right. We got all these religions out there, and what makes me think that mine's the right one because the other guy's saying his is the right one. So that really got me uh, into looking into religions. So I took, I just really just delved into the books and read and read and read on different religions and and what stunned me really to find after a lot of research was that at the core of all these religions were these numbers uh, you know the trinity and um you know just a lot of uh numbers and in geometry and the sacred geometry you know i started realizing that the different religious symbols had similarities in their design and, and what, what they were, uh, you know, why did they use these specific designs and where did they all come from? So I thought to myself, well, I, if I'm going to research this and really look into this, the place that I need to start with is Egypt at the, in the pyramids that, you know, in is where, you know, the three major religions really were born out of is Egypt. So, uh, and of course, I was already interested from a a builder's point of view of the pyramids. So um, I I looked around and and it was just kind of a unbelievable synchronicity, I guess you call it, that uh, I saw that John West was given tours in Egypt. So, so I called him and asked, uh, you know, if he was going to be doing any more trips. And he said, well, we won't be doing doing a trip. We just finished our trip this year, but we'll be probably be doing one next year in November. Uh, so I said, yeah, sign me up. Let me know. And uh, so it's close to a year. Uh, uh, and and he, he contacted me and said that the, this one is scheduled when he had his trip scheduled. And uh so it was, uh, I guess that was probably the great, the first great synchronicity there that happened because what ended up the, the, the trip that, uh, when we went over to Egypt, uh, when I got there and actually the first day that we looked at the, the Sphinx, it was a really great way he presented it too. We, we came in in the middle of the night into Cairo and it was all dark, and we got our hotel uh, in the Mina house right near the plateau. And he told us not to open our uh, blinds in the room. And we were to get up really early in the morning, and we were to meet out at the bus, which we did. And he drove us, they drove us to to a point where we could view the Sphinx, but we couldn't look at it until he told us to turn and look, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so that was kind of how, uh, we looked at this, at the Sphinx, but the, uh, synchronistic part of that was that that was, would have been my daughter's 17th birthday. Oh, wow. And that was, that really kind of blew me away that, that, you know, I had no idea when this trip was to be, uh, taken, but, you know, I just ended up there on that day, uh, the first thing I saw looking at the Sphinx, and I, I was very emotional moment for me, I got to tell you. Oh, of course, yeah. And, uh, so I made a promise that day right there 
um, at that point, I made a promise that I was going to search for the truth and I was going to figure this out and I was going to understand this and I was going to figure out what, why these religions all had a common core. And, uh, th that's the, the promise I made. And, uh, that was in 1997, and uh, we're here today. So that was just the first of many, uh, God, I can't tell you how many little synchronistic things happened to be along the way here. I mean, I could go on all night about that. Wow, that's a fa fairly powerful <laughs> one, yeah. that's. <laughs> so did you, guys, did you guys plan on watching the sunrise uh, that morning then? Yeah, yeah, it was sunrise. It was yeah. sunrise when it happened, and, wow. and, you know, it was just an awesome I mean, and I'll tell you something too. You want to go see Egypt? Take a trip with John, and uh, it'll change your world. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> he's been doing it for so long. He's such a great guy. Yeah. Uh, so definitely on the bucket list. <laughs> sign up with John, man. Go go with John. He'll he'll take you on a hell of a show. I I knew I knew it was a was a great thing when we were on the bus. It was actually him and I were the only two Americans. The rest were mostly British and some South uh, African people and uh, a few from the Netherlands, I think. But uh, he started doing the Cheech and Chung routine, and I was able to. We were going back and forth with Cheech and Chung. I knew, that, I knew right then he was the guy for me to take on that trip. <laughs> <laughs> I did the Cheech and Chung routine on the Great Pyramid in 1990. Actually, it was... I think the fall. No, it was a fall. Yeah, fall of uh, of nineteen ninety. Yeah, <laughs> I smoked like a doobie on the smoked a doobie on the. Oh yeah, that was yeah. nine. Yeah, that uh, was good. I didn't even know what a doobie was. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say you. What were you ten years old then, Graham, or what? Yeah. Oh no, I was like twenty. Twenty. <laughs> okay, you were a young. Yeah, club. yeah, I turned twenty that year. Yeah, that was that was a that was an amazing trip for me too. A month up and down Egypt was it was crazy. Yeah, mind blowing. Oh. Yeah, we had we had two weeks over there, and we went went up, you know, down to uh, Karnak. No, we didn't get down that far, but we went to, I think, down to uh, Luxor, and yeah, I was just one, probably. We didn't go that far either. Oh, but, okay, yeah. Anyhow, yeah, that's good. It was great. It was just a great, great trip. Yeah, one of the freakiest things was uh, the Valley of the Kings. I there's uh, all these yeah. cave caves on the wall up in the and on the yeah. where all the priests were buried. And I went in there with yep. my flip flops on, flip flops on my thongs. Did uh -huh. I tell you this story? And I broke. Yeah. I jumped down, and there's all these bones scattered everywhere. And there's little kids asking for backsheesh. And I broke one of my thongs jumping into the cave, and I had to walk out of there like under like uh -huh. in, in like scraps of rags and bones from the mummies in my uh -huh. bare foot. Yeah, it was weird. Jeez, oh, he has yeah. some peroxide on that, yeah, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was good. So, yeah, do you have a? Where can uh, listeners track you down? Do you have a website and stuff I like do. that? I do. I'm working on it a little bit right at the moment, and I'm hoping to get it back up and going here right shortly. But it's the Giza Template.com. Okay. And uh, they can reach me there. I do have a Facebook page, but I gotta admit, I am not. I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook, but uh, okay. I know I got it try to use it a little bit more and uh, reach a few people. But we'll, we'll link to all that in the show notes. And then what's the best way for people to buy your book? Uh, Amazon.com. Okay. That's pretty much uh, the best place to get it right now. It's right I'm self, I'm self publishing. So I don't have a publisher, but uh, uh, that's the easiest place to get it. And it's there. And like I said, if, if any, anyone who reads this, I'd appreciate uh, a review, give me a little feedback and, and let me know what you think. Right on, we'll do. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. 
Yeah, great. Thank you. Is there anything else uh, that you want to say before we wrap it up? I guess we'll see you in October, too. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really excited. I want to mention that, too. Yeah, we're going to be back uh, speaking at the uh, Paradigm Symposium. Uh, Scotty Roberts and John Ward invited me back, and uh, Randall Carlson's going to be there. Which, uh, what a great guy he is, and uh, he's got so much important information. Uh, so it should be uh a great time. I know I really enjoyed meeting you two guys and we had a good time there and, and uh, I really look forward to this next year. Well, thanks. Thanks a bunch for coming on the show, Ed. And uh, thanks for the books. I can't wait to get into it a little bit more. I kind of went through it quick. It seems like you really got to, you know, you could almost donate, uh, you know, 10 minutes to a page. Yeah. Yeah. You want to read it. And, and I've had a lot of people say they've read it two or three times, but boy, you know, it's only 81 pages long and half of it's graphic. So it's not a ton of reading. And I've, I really tried to, uh, you know, re- explain everything is, you know, it down. <laughs> right. Well, I, I'm not, I'm no genius either. I'm just a woodworker that just, uh, made a promise and, and, uh, you know, here it is. So, I like how you made it eight and a half by 11 too. So it's not, it's not a tiny little book. It's uh, got big pages that are easy to, Right, right. All the graphics are pretty easy to read. So. Yeah, that was that was my intention. You know, I wanted to make it so that people could see these graphics because this is the the important part of this. Right. Yeah. Graphics. Exactly. So when can we look forward to the next one? Well, I, I'll tell you. I, I was hoping in a couple of months here. Um, I got I got all the the graphics done and the research part of it done, and I started to write. Uh, it's it's going to be about the same size as this book here, the first book. Um, so I'm hoping in a couple of months, I'm really working hard on it, trying to, to finish it up. Cause so pre, it, this is, really, yeah, look, look at the first book here, read that first book. That's going to give you all the, the basic found foundation or the fundamental uh, knowledge that, that will make this next book be like, Oh, wow. Perfect. And, uh, it'll explain a whole lot of things. Well, I can't wait to uh, to see you in Minnesota again this year, and we can do this in person. Likewise, dude. That was fun. I appreciate uh, I appreciate our little time at Paradigm there, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's what we're here for. <laughs> That's right. Uh, All right, buddy. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. Hey, man. Thanks for having me, guys, and I can't wait to talk to you guys again. All right. Take care, Ed. Welcome back to the Great America Show. That was our chat with Edward Nightingale. Yeah, that was uh, it's kind of a hard one to follow. Uh, hopefully, you guys stuck with it. Yeah, he's got a, a shitload of good information in there. It's just uh, the book's a lot easier to follow. Articulating it. Yeah, yeah I hope he. I hope he can. Uh, I hope he can uh, can smooth out his presentation because the book is a lot easier to follow. There's tons of diagrams, and I definitely recommend. Uh, it's definitely worth picking up. Yeah. Yeah. Put it this way. The, the He's plateau, on to something there. Totally. The plateau is following a bunch of fucking crazy geometrical principles. Is that It'll be thing? interesting to see how much uh, him and Randall. Yeah. 
talk this uh, this paradigm in yeah. October. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's good stuff. So we want to thank Edward for coming on and. Uh, yeah, friend of the show, Ed, come back anytime. Yeah. Who's next? Extra uh, lease will be. Uh, shit. Would it be Connor Habib? No. Yeah, Connor Habib. That quick? I don't know. I could be wrong. Could be wrong. Yeah, we got to get this shit together before we do the little, little outro. But That's all right. It'll be a surprise. Then. It'll be a surprise then, yeah. Surprise, motherfucker. So help support the show for sure. Yeah, uh, grabamerica.ca yeah. slash support. Help keep us ad and sponsor free. Yeah. And uh, that's about it, I think. Yes. So sign up for the newsletter, grabamerica.ca slash news. Yeah, leave a voicemail if you want. On yeah, grabamerica.ca. Um, you can check out the show notes for a list of all this stuff and links to everything that you can do to help us. Um, review us on iTunes is a big one. Yeah, and of course, the easiest thing to do is just uh, pat, your pe- pat people on the back. <laughs> Tell people about the show. Yeah. Thanks a lot for listening. Starts, what do you do with the man that you feel? When you feel so mad you could bite. When the whole wide world seems oh so wrong. And nothing you do seems very right. What do you do with the man that you feel? Do you punch a bag? Do you pound some clay or some dough? Do you round up friends for a game of tag? See how fast you go. What do you do with the man that you feed? What do you do with the man that you feed? What do you do? What do you do? What do you do with the man that you feed? What do you do with the man that you feed? And that first line came straight from a child. I work with children. What do you do? It's great to be able to stop when you've planned a thing that's wrong and be able to do something else instead and think this song. I can stop when I want to and stop when I wish. Can stop, stop, stop anytime. And what a good feeling to feel like this. And know that the feeling is really mine. Know that there's something deep inside that helps us become what we can. For a girl can be someday a lady. And a boy can be someday a man. What do you do with the mad that you feel? When you feel so mad you could bite. When the whole wide world seems oh so wrong. Nothing you do seems very right. What do you do with the man that you feel? Do you punch a bag? Do you pound some clay or some dough? Do you round up friends for a game of tag? Or see how fast you go? When the whole wide world seems oh so wrong, And nothing you do seems very right. What do you do? Do you punch a bag? Do you pound some clay or some dough? Do you round up friends for a game of tag? Or see how fast you go? You've made this day a special day. By just your being you. There's no person in the whole world like you. 
and I like you just the way you are. And I feel that if we in public television can only make it clear that feelings are mentionable and manageable, we will have done a great service for mental health. And that first line came straight from a child. I work with children.